Hello and welcome to episode 223 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we're pouring the champagne and raising a glass as we toast to the year 2022 in film with our fifth annual Some Like It Scott Awards. But first, how are you, Scott? Doing well. Ready to uh, get all the awards out. We're doing, we usually do this closer to when Oscars are actually happening. So it's actually refreshing to not have to think about the Oscar categories too much while we're doing these awards. I mean, they are out already. Nominations are, are in, but I don't have to sit here the whole time we're talking about the uh, original screenplay category and think about my nominees versus whatever the Oscars nominees were. I, I'm not thinking about it right now. We've got a whole month to, to figure that out before I need to submit my, defend my title as Peacock Oscar champion. Uh, I won the draft pool, Oscar pool last year. I don't know. Whatever. That's that's impressive because I feel like the Oscar pools are like March Madness brackets where the people who know the most often end up losing because they they don't take the unpredictability factor into it. And so it's usually mm-hmm. the people who are like, uh, you know, do the look at the New York Times predictions or whatever for the Oscars that end up winning, but actually don't know anything about the movies. I mean, the truth is that Oscars are mostly chalk. That's like true. They are ninety percent of the categories are chalk. Right. So that you're that's how you win. You know, you just yeah. got to pick the right ones to bet on. Right? You got to you got to you got to pick Coda. You got to ride the wave on Coda. That's your that's your bet. Don't play yourself. Yeah, Coda never really did Coda. win. Never Coda did really did win, didn't it? That was the thing that happened. Is that a voice uh, that I hear on the podcast? What is that? Yeah. Uh, so you heard him a little bit there. Um, I believe we did tease this at the end of our last episode. But joining us for the second straight year for the Sun Like It Scott Awards, uh, we have friend of the show, Paul Oyama here. Paul, how are you? Are you excited for a little award show tonight? I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad we're here to celebrate the best films of 2022 and Petite Mama. Um, but I'm just pumped <laughs> to be is. back in the podcast, you know? I had to get it at the beginning, and then I'll, I'll, I'll let it ride for the rest of the show. But uh, yeah, See, I'm, pe- this is always a fun fun episode. Now people are going to think you don't actually like the movie, and that's what you meant. Right? No, people, loyal fans remember last year when I when it won original screen. Yeah, I guess that's true. You did bring it up Check last the year. tape. Check the tape from last year. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, anyway, on my nominee list. I have to go check. Peek behind the curtain. I did uh, say before the podcast that there needs to be no petite mama year discourse. So that was <laughs> why Paul was getting that out of the way early, I guess, which is which is better than the alternative. But anyway, um, let's just get right into it, guys, because uh, we know that these award shows can drag on, uh, whether it's the real awards or our fake awards here. Um, so we are going to start things off. Uh, by bringing back one of our old categories, um, just very briefly, this was uh, somewhat at the request of our our guest, and um, yeah, I think it's a good category. You know, something a, a fun topic to discuss that doesn't often get brought up in other you know lists and awards type things. Um, and so the award that we called uh, back in the day was brightest light in the darkness. It was for a good performance in a movie that we did not enjoy. So we're not going to be doing the full gamut of nominees, obviously, um, but we are going to each be talking about one person, one winner, um, so to speak, in this category. So, Paul, I'll throw it to you first. Um, who was your brightest light in the darkness for the year 2022? Yeah, usually, I think most years, this is an easier category for me. This year, I had to dig a little bit in terms of maybe stretching the de- definition of a bad movie. Um, but for me, it's Juliette Binoche in Claire Denis' Both Sides of the Blade, which is a movie I thought really did not work. 
Um, but I think her performance is really strong. It's sort of elevated to being decent. Um, it's not a superbly written character, I don't think, and it's got some weird relationship dynamics, but what she brings to the role, um, her emotional clarity, um, there's a particular scene like in the bathtub that I think is really excellent. And um, yeah, I think she was really great in a movie that otherwise was not. Scott, I think you saw this one, correct? I did see this. I saw this at a French, the French, they don't, it's not a festival here in New York, but they have a week where they play a bunch of new French filmmakers films. Um, I saw that and I saw, I almost saw Anais in Love, but it was also there. I didn't end up getting to see that, but I did see it, was not a fan of the film either. I haven't really thought too much about it, but so much of the film definitely didn't work in the second half for me, but I, I thought Juliette Binoche's performance was good. Yeah, I, I don't know if I have too much to add, but it wasn't um, at her feet that the blame fell, I'd say, on, on, on the movie. Yeah, I only saw Claire Denis' other film from the year, which I wouldn't say was bad. Um, but yeah, that I didn't get to this one, didn't hear good things about it. So probably a good shot there. Juliette Binoche, not really somebody who disappoints that often. So um, Scott- I think when I saw it, it was also winner. called something different. It wasn't called Both Sides Higher. of the Blade when I saw it. Higher is what it was probably yeah. called. The title kept Yeah, name. that's right. They did change it. Yeah. 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 All right, Scott, who's your winner here? I don't know. I try. I, I was going down my list also looking for something a little bit more original than saying Austin Butler or I don't know, either of Margot Robbie's roles from the year. Um, and I decided to to go with uh, oh, there it is. Grace Kaufman's performance in The Sky is Everywhere, uh, Joseph Decker's film. Uh, I don't know if that's an ouch from the movie being bad, but I did not enjoy the film. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if I need to say too much more, but I did really like the warmth um, of Grace Kaufman's performance. She sort of plays the lead in the film. She's a, a sort of a teen musical prodigy grieving the death of her sister. And, and she sort of ends up, it's just, it kind of feels like from there, it's a kind of like a classic Netflix premise, like Netflix film premise that you've probably seen in like three or four other Netflix, like teen rom-com-ish movies. And I think I felt that sort of sameness in so much of the film. There were some elements that that did differentiate it a little bit from some of those other movies. But one of the things that stood out the most for me was uh, was Grace Coffin's performance. Kept hoping that I would like just see that she was going to be in more stuff. I, I don't really feel like this went anywhere for her. Maybe not a surprise because I do think it's like one of 50 Netflix movies that came out last year. You know, 48 of which no one even remembers. And, and it was an Apple movie, so it wasn't even from Netflix. Yeah. Bam! I just got outed hard there, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, That's, that and their case in point um, is why it, it, that I guess well as an extra element is that very few people probably saw the movie than if it was on Apple uh, and TV Plus. So I can't even remember why I watched this movie. I think I just took a flyer on it. Maybe, it, maybe I think it might have been because I said it was good because I liked it. <laughs> yeah. And Josephine Decker is an interesting director. I mean, I, I do think the sure. film is has some. I mean, at least visually, is is somewhat interesting, but. Um, yeah, I didn't hate the movie either. I remember liking her performance. Um, yeah. but I wouldn't say I, I, I didn't hate the movie. I just didn't enjoy yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a movie that stuck with me. I will say that, uh, much for sure. But, um, Scott, yeah. you know what you rated so, that film on Letterboxd? Three and a half, I believe. Money. Classic Scott Harvey. The movie's not that good. Three and a half star rating. I was a big, I was a big fan. I was a big fan of it personally. 
All right, I like the conflict from the very beginning. I'm just gonna incite more conflict now. Yeah, Avatar uh, Two or something like that. Is what you're gonna say? Some, some performance out of Avatar just, Two? No, uh, <laughs> no. Obviously, that's not true. Um, Maybe more but, on that you know, later. Paul was saying that uh, you know it's a little bit harder to think about like bad films and stuff like that. So I, I went down the road of a film that a lot of people actually liked. I did not. Uh, but there was one performance, a supporting performance, that I actually quite enjoyed from the film. Wonder what movie it could be. I know, right? Uh, it's the film Twitter's best picture of, uh, of 2022, Babylon. Uh, and the film, uh, the performance I picked is actually by Olivia Hamilton, who uh, appears in the film. She is Damien Chazelle's wife in her life. She appears in the film for a couple of scenes as this um, female director. I believe her name is Ruth something in the movie. Ruth Conda Adler forever or something like that um <laughs> gosh uh ruth adler i believe is her name in the film she's modeled after like a dorothy dorothy arzner type figure um you know this like early hollywood you know female director who was able to break through the glass ceiling so to speak um and i just wish that that more of this movie had been about her like i wanted to know more about her character um i think she like kind of settled into the rhythm that I maybe wanted this movie to be at. Um, you know, she had like the wittiness with the way that she delivered the dialogue, but wasn't taking it over the top in a way that like, I didn't actually believe her. Um, like I, I did feel unfortunately at other times in Babylon, but um, yeah, she gives a fun performance um, and I would love to see more of her in other stuff. I think, you know, she's appeared maybe in small roles in, in Chazelle's other films. I'm, think or at least one of his other films but um yeah she she was the the one that stand out that i came away from like i said being like i wish that we had known more about this character i want to know how did she get here you know because it's just an interesting um type of character and in the shock of the night scott harvey is the one to bring up online discourse on the award show <laughs> I, know, right? I know everyone is very surprised by this uh, let's just say we may differ on our feelings about Yeah, that's why I said I might be inciting some conflict. Um, but yeah, you know, Scott is, is less mad about movie. the movie and just most mad about the discourse. To be clear on that movie, that that's Scott's like understand. worst the worst yeah. thing about twenty twenty two is is the Babylon discourse. I think is this. It's favorite. not, and it's not that people like it. It's just the way that they talk about it is just kind of strange to me. But anyway, that's definitely not why we're here. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. Okay. Let's get into uh, the meat of the order a little bit with uh, the rest of our awards. Um, we're going to start again with best original score, as we did last year. Um, this is one which we are also going to go through kind of quickly. We're going to say our nominees, but then we're mainly just going to talk about our winner. Um, and then we'll get into the major categories and, uh, you know, really get into the, the details there. But um, Scott, I'll throw it to you this time Ooh. to kick us off. Who are your five nominees? Yeah, I'll do them in alphabetical order by last name, just to clarify what the order Ooh. is here. Uh, Michael Abels for Nope, Simon Franklin for Avatar The Way of Water, Hildur Gunadotter for Tar, Justin Hurwitz for Babylon, and Nathan Johnson for Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. And I'm going with Michael Abels for Nope. Uh, fantastic film, fantastic score. One of my favorite musical moments in movies in, in uh, 2022 when he's riding through the gulch with Jean Jacket chasing him. Just epic scene. Um, great picks by Scott there. I, I went in a different alphabetical order. I went in order of the movie, so this is going to be a little confusing maybe for the listener. Um, my, my nominees are Justin Hurwitz for Babylon, Michael Giacchino for The Batman, 
Robin Carolyn and Sebastian Gainsborough for The Northman, Michael Abels for Nope, and Tindersticks for Stars at Noon. Um, my winner is Justin Hurwitz for Babylon. Um, I love the main motif, and um, I'm a big fan of jazz music in general, and so Hurwitz is someone who always kind of, I gravitate towards his kind of sound. But especially the, um, the song that plays in the beginning when you get the kind of Joven Adepo solo on the trumpet, um, that that's I've listened to that like countless countless times. Um, is that Voodoo yeah. Mama? Is that is that Voodoo Mama? Right. No, it's the one right after that, or maybe before oh, okay. that. I think. It's like okay. the second track on there. But yeah, so it's, it's not it's not the, the one that's like all over the trailer then, because that's Voodoo. No, 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 no. Okay. It's a little slight variation. On, it's same sort of like motif, but it's, it's all La La Land. It's fine. We all know it's La La Land reused. It's all good. Does um, he even qualify? Does he qualify for the Oscars this year because of that? I'm kidding. He's nominated. He's nominated. I know. Yeah, he might win. He might win. I understand. <laughs> Stand down. That's by the way. That's one win for Babylon early on. So let's just keep that count going. Yeah. Oh, we will. And I. I mean, again, that is another thing that I. That is something I liked about Babylon. I am a fan of Justin Herbert's, especially his first man score, which somehow did not get nominated for the Oscar. It's still insane to me. But yeah, uh, Babylon picking up its first award of the night. And I will just bite sure. my tongue as I say that. All right. Uh, this is my first nominees. win and first nomination. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's second Sorry, win. It's technically, it's second I win. gave it right yeah, aside. Or third nomination if Scott Shelton also nominated for That's his true. own. It's, it's second win Keep and third going. nomination. It's oh, on fire, right? Uh, all right. My nominees for best original score uh, John Williams for The Fablemans. Cho Young Wook for Decision to Leave, Michael Giacchino for The Batman, M.M. Kiravani for RRR, and Michael Abels for Nope. And I also went with Michael Abels for Nope as my winner. Um, I think if you want to hear like this score in a nutshell, listen to two tracks. One is Preparing the Trap. The other one is, I believe it's called, it might just be called The Run or Making the Run. But basically you get all of it in those two tracks preparing the trap you get like the twinkly like amblin john williams type stuff which you know fits the sci-fi elements of the movie and then with the run track you get like it starts with like the intense strings almost like something out of uh, michael abel's us score um and but then it goes into like that the western motifs like you know again you feel like you're listening to ennio morricone at that point um and that's you know, underscoring the scene where Kaluuya is, of course, like galloping, you know, down the, the yard, yeah. whatever, the area, yeah. trying to lure Jean Jacket. Um, and yeah, so he, he, in the same way that Jordan Peele is bending genres with what he's doing in the movie, so too is uh, Michael Abels with what he does on his score. So um, kind of an easy choice for me. Um, I like you know, all, all of the nominees, obviously, but he was really kind of the only one that I thought about choosing here. So, and we all I've seen, it, I think so. I've seen the movie uh, three or four times now, and every single time when that scene happens, the one you're talking about, the one that I mentioned as well, it's just like, I just sort of feel myself like sitting forward in my seat a little bit, like bobbing my head, ready to go. For, for anyone at home, Scott just did like a mini gallop on an imaginary horse that was very, very memorable. Wish y'all could see. <laughs> to be clear, all of our listeners could feel me doing that. You didn't need to explain it to them. I could feel the energy yeah. in the room. They're listening to the podcast in 4D, so they actually did yeah. uh, feel it. We're now going to move it on to uh, the major categories, you know, the traditional big seven, well, big six Oscar categories. Um, and we're going to start with Best Supporting Actor. 
And I guess I'm going to be the one starting. I guess it's my turn to start this time. Uh, my nominees for Best Supporting Actor are Glenn Powell in Top Gun Maverick, Brian Tyree Henry in Causeway, Jake Gyllenhaal in Ambulance, uh, uh, Theo Rossi in Emily the Criminal, and Timothy Chalamet in Bones and All. We're going to go over to Paul now for his nominees. Yeah, so I have Gong Don Juan in Broker. I have Barry Keegan in The Banshees of Inishirin. I have Glenn Powell in Top Gun Maverick. I have Kehoe Kwan in Everything Everywhere All at Once. And Brian Tyree Henry in Causeway. Scott? Guys, it's so sick that all three of us are nominating Glenn Powell. I didn't actually, I, didn't, <laughs> I wasn't sure that it would actually happen. He's our savior. Yeah, I know, right? Dude, the guy, sh- he and I'm forgetting the other, one of the other pilots introduced the movie at when I saw the film at in IMAX at Lincoln Square. And I was like, I walk in because I'm like classic. I show up like 20 minutes late to movies because I'm like so tired of seeing 30 minutes of commercials before before films at AMC. And I walk in and there's just these people talking like literally right in front of me because you, when you walk in the theater, you're at the bottom in this theater, like all the way at this bottom where there's this area where they could have like Q&As and stuff. And I'm just like, Glenn Powell, <laughs> like just right there. Um, anyway, yes, I, I am nominating... <laughs> Uh, he's not alphabetical order. This isn't working for my alphabetical order thing here. I'm nominating uh, Timothy Chalamet in Bones and All, uh, Britton Dalton in Avatar The Way of Water. There you go. Colin Farrell uh, in The Batman. I, I'm getting just horrified looks on, on, on StreamYard. That's for everyone. Here. Colin Farrell in The Batman, uh, Brian Tyree Henry in Causeway, and Glenn Powell in Top Gun Maverick. Man, the reaction, the visceral reaction I got from... I'm mostly just thrown that Glenn Powell was there at the end, and he still wasn't in alphabetical order. Like, you already had spoiled it, but you still <laughs> threw him in at the end. Like, he was after Tyree Henry. That was incredible. Well, let's talk about the ones... What, that we what do you define as his last name? Because I, th- I just think Henry is his last name. I don't actually know. That's no, the thing. I would, I would, this is where anyway, our listeners are to hear, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, let's talk about the ones we had in common. We All three of us had two in common there, I believe. So we had Glenn Powell in Top Gun Maverick. Um, and then um, Brian Tyree Henry, who, of course, was Oscar-nominated for Causeway. Paul, I'll throw it to you. You know, do you want to say more about Brian Tyree Henry? I know we're all fans of him here, but I think in particular you're a, a big fan of him. Yeah, I mean, I think he – this is his meatiest film role, and it's nice to see him with, like, a legit role. I think for years he was just like, why is he in this movie for two minutes sitting at a desk? Um, giving someone back their adoption papers, you know, no movie specific reference there. Um, but I think he really is what elevates the movie. And honestly, like he's almost too good in that the movie feels like it should be about him because he's the more interesting character. Not that Jennifer Lawrence is not. Um, but I think when he's te- when he's telling the story about what happened to his leg and how he, he lost his leg and the story about his relationship with his sister, all that stuff, I think is so emotionally grounded. And he's just one of those actors who has this unmistakably serene presence to him and i love the way that his interplay with jennifer lawrence changes over the course of the film as like there's that scene in the pool that's really great too that is like almost reminiscent of a certain scene from edge of 17 um but it's it's just really great stuff and i think he's just one of those actors that i i want to have more substantial roles in film because he is such a great actor obviously atlanta is the thing that i love him the most and now that it's over i think he has sort of an opportunity to expand his career to really become like sort of like a movie star that I think he, he totally is capable of being. Yeah. Um, and as far as Glenn Powell is concerned, um, you know, the, the movie stardom, it, it's, it's really hard to be in this movie and to not get subsumed by the 
insane star power of Tom Cruise and the fact that so much of the movie is centered around him and this, you know, whole meta narrative surrounding his character. And, you know, again, it's also about Tom Cruise himself, though. But Glenn Powell has that cocky flyboy energy that, like, you know, you want from a movie like this. But he is still so likable because he's Glenn Powell. Um, and when he comes to save the day again, his just his delivery of those lines of, you know, this is your saber speaking. And when when uh, when Rooster is like, you know, you sound good. Uh, and he's like, I am good, Rooster. I am good. Um, it's it's just great. The fact that he gets to have the moment like that is so cool, because, um, again, you you know, you're you would expect that it's all about Tom Cruise. But, um, yeah, he, he feels like he is on the cusp now of you know being one of our next big movie stars um and he certainly deserves it you know we've been talking about him for a while um he he probably you know he was waiting a little bit for this movie to come out um but i think it was probably worth the wait from his perspective because uh, i would suspect that he's going to get a lot of work off of it and he deserves it um only a yeah. shame that his other pilot film from 2022 was a bit of a dud yeah, that would have been the real sicko move was to, would be to nominate um, him for that movie instead. But um, it's called Devotion. It has a name. You don't have to call yeah. it that movie. It's a, you know, it's not <laughs> like Voldemort. Um, I, I just just want to mention. Yeah, I think one of the things about his performance with Powell is that on paper the role is like nothing and like just classic douchebag archetype, boring. And he brings it to life and he gives it what well, not necessarily depth, but he gives it a lot more energy than I think you you even need to. And that makes the movie so much better when you have characters that are not given a ton to do, but make the most out of those opportunities. That's what kind of elevates the rest of the movie, like to being one of the, the kind of better films of the year. I think. Especially when you consider that, you know, he, he definitely tried out for the rooster role and I'm yeah. sure he was immensely disappointed when he didn't get that role. And the fact that he still was able to take on this more insignificant part in the, in the grand scheme of the film but was able, like you said, to make the most of it, to have these sort of like really sort of like fist pumping kind of moments that Scott was talking about a little bit earlier. It, and he's such a treat to, to watch. He has that he has that that charisma, that X factor, I feel like. And we've seen him have the charisma in movies where there's not a big movie star alongside him. And to see it still be there when yeah. Tom Cruise is next to him, I think is pretty important. Like it's easy enough to be the big star when it's like a bunch of guys who are just as sort of anonymous as you, but when there's like the real deal movie star, even Teller was like a pretty big name too, to stand out still, I think that's pretty big. It's a perfect supporting performance, honestly, in the context of the movie, it really is. Um, sure. Scott, we also had in common, you and I had Timothy Chalamet for Bones and All. Um, yeah. Probably not the supporting performance that most people are talking about from Bones and All, uh, but <laughs> really in a different league from Mark Rylance's performance, uh, in my opinion. Do you want to say more about uh, Timmy? Yeah. I, when I was making this list, his name kind of, I think I made like a, a long list and <laughs> I just sort of like immediately, I was going through it, I added his name and I was just thinking about the film. I'm like, I know it's a small, it, at the end of the day, it is a small movie. Like it, Bones and All is still like a small, not quite indie, but like sort of indie Luca Guadagnino movie with, yes, it has Timothy Chalamet, but, you know, Mark Rylance, not a huge movie star either as a, as a co-star. I mean, Taylor Russell, obviously not either. Um, and I'm just kind of surprised that like more people aren't talking about this film. I, the answer is just like this film is just like a real sick film. Like it's just 
people aren't talking about it because people don't want to don't want to talk about this movie and i i kind of get it but again i i don't love the film but i do really love this performance from him i think that he's definitely the best performance in the movie after i saw this one at the festival and, and then it came out you know a few weeks later i was just sort of baffled that everyone was focused on mark rylance's performance um i just think that there's just so much there that he brings and maybe you could argue that that the role is very up his alley you know he literally did a, a role similar to this in a different luca guadagnino um like teen coming of age romance type film he did a similar i mean it was a similar role not the exact same but pretty similar role but he just brings so much soul to it and i think it's it's really easy to be like oh timothy chalamet like yeah he's like the up-and-coming like leading man and just sort of forget that like he's like he has got it like he really does um and i think you see it sort of in almost in every frame that he's in in the film and it's just a real treat I, like there's specifically in the, in the sort of the the heart of the film the middle of it there's these different interactions with different groups of people that you run through and he's just sort of like i think he's just so locked in on the level of the film and maybe it's a function of having worked with with luca guadagnino before or maybe it's just a function of him just having something that most actors just can't quite access in terms of resonating with the film that you're making but he's just, again it just really totally felt like he was on the same wavelength of the film and it's frankly how i always feel with him when he's there so i think it's really cheap it's, it's sort of like eye roll at this point to say like oh timothy chalamet like good actor or whatever but he is guys he's very good yeah i mean he's got he's got it too like we're talking about with glenn powell all you yeah, have to in do a different watch... way he's got it yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah all you have to do is watch according to girls at nyu he definitely has it so there you go <laughs> All you have to do is watch the scene in this movie where he sings and dances to um, yeah. Lick It Up by Kiss. Uh, and that is just an iconic scene, uh, you know, right right from the get-go. Um, but, yeah, no, mm -hmm. he's, he has this, like, weird jittery energy about him that, like, you just want to keep watching him. Like, he is just doing something interesting. He is just an interesting presence. He is something different, like, for, from the traditional movie star, but has that you know, magnetism about him um, that I have not found a role yet for him where I'm not like immediately drawn to his character, um, even in a supporting role here. Like you said, when you have, you know, Taylor Russell's lead in the movie, you have Mark Rylance showing up and just like eating the scenery in his scenes. Like it's it's all about among other things Chalamet for me. Um, yeah. <laughs> when talking about this movie. But, yeah. um, let's go around the horn, but talk about your other nominees and then you know build sure. up to your winner um paul we'll start with you yeah so uh gong don juan from broker um a lot of that is on the back of the the scene on the ferris wheel um with him yeah. and iu i think the discussion they have um is really the thing that set him apart from song king ho because i to me they're both great supporting performances from the same movie but i think maybe just because he gets slightly better material to work with but i think his empathy is like so powerful and clearly him and Song Kang-ho's characters, they feel a little bit differently about the world and about what they're doing, but they still sort of put those aside to work together. And the things that you see come out of him when this kid is around and when the young boy joins them as well, the, that, the way that relationship is fostered to me is pretty special stuff. Um, I had Barry Keegan, who is obviously nominated for an Oscar, who I think is incredible, specifically the scene where he, he asked Siobhan like, are you sure like you don't want to give me a chance like on the cliff side that's just like he also has that great weirdo energy that i just think is incredible um like i feel like when he's on screen i just never know what he's going to do next like he has this unpredictability that um 
I really gravitate towards. And I think that as much as I liked the Brendan Gleeson performance, to me, the Barry Keegan one is is a better supporting performance because it's, I don't know, I think it's playing off people a little more interestingly. And <clears throat> I don't know, I think he makes a lot out of a little, which is maybe a thing that I love. Um, and then my win is Kehoi Kwan, who is probably going to win the Academy Award. Um, but is a really special and important performance to me. I rewatched the movie last night and um, the scene really that, that makes it for me is when he talks about how his kindness is not secondary, but it's an active choice and it's a thing that he battles and fights for consistently. And that to him, that's what strength is, um, is choosing kindness when it's not easy. And I think that his level of empathy is like unbelievable. And I think I'm often a sucker for like stories about, immigrant Asian parents, I think, because of my own life and everything. But um, his, his, oh my God, his emotional warmth, I think, and, and, and empathy um, is just incredible. And even the scenes where he's not the focal point, the way that he interacts with his family members, I think is just like pretty special. And I think I'm really glad that that's a performance that's being celebrated the way that it is, because um, not just because of his history in the business, which is another thing entirely too, but that specific performance I think is worthy of, of the claim. And I think it's yeah, just really remarkable stuff. And honestly, you know, the scene you talk about, there's almost a meta layer to it again, talking about his career in Hollywood of, you know, that he seems in, in, in real life to be such a kind person um, and generous person. But, you know, we know that for the 20, uh, 20, 30 odd years prior to this film, he was not treated with the same kindness and generosity by the film industry in Hollywood. So um, probably just adds something extra to the performance that, you know, he maybe relates to a lot of. But and it is it is very funny that almost in a way, Steven Yoon is almost playing Kihoi Kwan in, which is another sort of like that was a, a, was a bit of a hat that. tip to Steven Yoon, too, to me, yeah. who I think is was pretty close. But I think like channeling that is what sort of maybe enhance the emotions of it for me to make it feel more immediate. Yeah, I almost yeah. put Kihei Kwan on this list and then I put one pal. I did so. too. Sorry, guys. I'm a fan of all three of the ones that, that Paul mentioned. You know, they're all really yeah. good performances. Um, sure. In the case of Barry Keegan and Kihei Kwan, it was just like, they're getting so much attention. I just kind of wanted to, you know, throw some different names in there, I guess. I'm normally like that. To me, though, they were probably like my one and two. Sure. And so I just think it would be stupid to and have I'm, them. Yeah. They're getting so I'm going to be like that later too, so I will be a hypocrite. We can skip over it. Then. We talk we about it another time. time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Scott, uh, run down the rest of your choices and winner. Sure. Yeah, Colin Farrell for the Batman. Um, big year for Colin Farrell. If I, I mean, I guess I literally could have nominated him for every movie that he was in this year. I suppose I could have done that. Um, but to get there, I'm going to have to start with nominating him for the Batman. I guess. And his Penguin, one of the best parts of the film, and a film that I really, really liked. Uh, I was excited nervous about another batman movie um robert pattinson returning to be sort of like the ultra movie star that he was 15 years ago and then have it coupled with complete i don't know dceu turmoil trauma that's happening over there constantly every other week and combine that with you know everything else that I guess could have could have gone wrong with the movie. Get, getting it compared to like Fincherian, like detective procedural 
like a couple weeks before i'm like man you're gonna really call this thing like zodiac of superhero movies or something like that's like probably not a good thing uh not a good sign but the fact that you didn't go and see it and it delivers not just in the sort of things that people were talking about in terms of the vibe of it and something like being more a hard-boiled detective story than it is a superhero film and then have it coupled with sort of like those really sort of almost not quite insane but like a little bit crazy performances in some of the supporting cast that you want out of like a great like cadre of like villains in a film in a vil- in a in a superhero movie especially a batman movie with the different people that he often interacts with i found it to be just the perfect balance and colin Farrell is the best example of that he also gave one of the funniest clips to me when he's like what are you doing why are you um, looking yeah. at <laughs> yeah i mean the, the whole scene where he's getting interrogated <laughs> yeah. he's correcting their spanish i mean just one of the funniest scenes um yeah. on this year no doubt and then also but also followed that that follows one of the most epic chase scenes of the year too at the same time yeah, yeah, yeah. um still mad that they but I like how we backdoored an honorable mention best of the year for the batman into the supporting actor category that was a, this, yeah, look we talked about not, not being able to do six or seven or eight different like additional nominees and categories so i'm backdooring mm-hmm. to them talking about winners in other categories so it's <laughs> next level thinking over here um no i i really enjoyed this performance just so much and I've literally been like for the last two months I haven't done it. I've been just been thinking oh, I should rewatch the Batman um so I'm probably gonna do that at some point I did really enjoy the film loved his performance and is 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 his HBO Max spinoff show happening anymore I don't know I think last time I checked yes but also he's in everything so I don't know what his schedule is like and then oh yeah there's other nominees that I have to talk about oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Britton Dalton. The visceral reaction that I got from you guys when I said Britton Dalton's name for Avatar The Way of Water. Uh, you know, I stand by it, guys. Avatar The Way of Water, a fantastic film. And I think one of the things that I didn't necessarily expect out of the film was to be so enamored by a lot of the new cast members. <clears throat> and I think he's the best example. A, mainly probably because he has the most to do of the new cast members in the film. I think a lot of the emotional sort of center of gravity of the last two thirds of the movie is around sort of the almost outsider type experience that he goes through. And I just found something very touching about the performance. Um, You know, I'm an only child, so I I don't necessarily have like the same experiences that he has being overshadowed by a sibling or or anything like that or having to live up to certain expectations. But I, I did feel like even without those experiences myself, I did feel like that performance really touched something, um, that felt very accessible to me still in terms of uh, emotional access, things like that. And the fact that he's able to combine that sort of teenage angst vulnerability that you'd expect from someone of his age with, um, you know, with, with the direction that the film goes, I thought was certainly um, worthy of one of the, one of the best performances in a, in a film that I think is underrated for its performances. I think people like to sort of, it's obviously very easy to talk about the technical aspects of Avatar and what everything was able to be accomplished over the last like 13 years making the film um, and sort of very easy to like, just dunk on like, oh, like these performances, like, you know, you got Sam Worthington or whatever, like leading the film, like, what is this? And I just think that's like a really lazy criticism uh, to, to lob. And I, I actually think a lot of the performances are really good. And Britton Dalton is one of them. My win for Timothy Chalamet though. Timothy Chalamet, I think is the name I just kept coming back to on the yeah. list and just being like, just something magnetic about the performance is hard to, hard to deny it for me. Great choice. Um, so I also had Theo Rossi and Emily the Criminal. 
great. Um, you know, he's seen, he's such a real character. I mean, again, both he and Aubrey Plaza are, but again, you think of this movie, you think, I mean, it's right there in the title, Emily, the criminal, you think Aubrey Plaza, um, you think of her dominating this movie, but the fact that he is able to create such a real character and the interactions between them are as, you know, strong of scenes as, you know, the set pieces in the movie, right? Um, you actually really understand the motivations of each of these characters. And I, I really like that the movie shows you multiple sides of, you know, the commentary it's trying to make. Because this Theo Rossi character, Yusuf, is, he's an immigrant, right? And he's from Lebanon, we learn. And he um, works with his family, but he also has dreams of, you know, buying this house, getting away. Um, and, you know, we don't know all the details of his situation, whether he, you know, is a legal or illegal immigrant. But anyway, the point is he's been forced into this situation in the same way that Emily has. Um, and it just shows the multiple ways that the system is sort of rigged, which is kind of what the whole movie is about. But he brings such a humanity um, to the role that it makes it ultimately very difficult what happens with his character in the end. It makes, you know, the choice that Emily has to make. And you've probably never seen him in really much of anything, right? I, I saw him in Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead, but that was about it. Mm -hmm. I, I recognize him from the Daredevil Netflix show, or the Luke Cage Netflix oh. show, rather. And I was like, oh shit, this guy. Yeah, he's an, old, he's an older guy, so it's cool that he, you know, he got a Spirit Award nomination, I believe, for this. So, um, you know, it's cool to see him um, getting a meeting role like this. But my winner, you probably he's think most, I'm crazy. He's most famous for Sons of Anarchy, though, right? That's what he's, like, known for? Probably. probably. Yeah, I haven't yeah. seen it. You guys probably think I'm crazy, but Jake Gyllenhaal, Best you, Supporting you Actor, are. 2022 for Ambulance. You um, certainly are crazy for I just, your award. Right? I just think it's incredible that a guy of, of his stature, right, a, a genuine, you know, A-list movie star or whatever, just goes fully off the rails in this, you know, crazy Michael Bay um, chase movie and is, you know, completely unhinged, yelling about, white powder on his uh, ruining his his cashmere sweater and uh, singing along to sailing by christopher cross and just uh you know screaming at everyone basically it it's the perfect type of performance that i want from this movie he he, he genuinely knows what um, type of movie he is, he is in and um he's he, you know he's perfectly on the wavelength he's he just seems like he's having a great time playing this role and it's infectious. I, I also have a great time watching him. And like I said, it, I there there is something that is added to the performance, just seeing that as Jake Gyllenhaal, right? A guy that we know has, you know, done, I mean, he was in, he just done Brokeback Mountain. He's done like all these, you know, serious dramas, Oscar nominated actor. And he just says, screw it. And just, you know, throws it all out there. Um, is it, it, he's like close to getting in the doghouse though, right? Like he's like really on a weird, a weird. He's doing, movie. yeah, he's doing whatever he wants right now. Which he's I think uh, leading kind of... the new Guy Ritchie movie, right? Isn't he? The, the Covenant. Yeah. 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 But I mean, anyway, strange. Someone world. say he's on a heater. Someone say he's on a heater right now. You know, the oh, you guilty, strange, you, big, you big strange world. The guilty fan? strange world. Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I but mean, anyway. between the guilty and uh, spirit, saw? spirit untamed. <laughs> I mean, the guy, the guy has, has made a real a real psychotic run of films. I will say it's funny that Scott did a whole thing about how it's cr it's great to see this A-list movie start acting crazy when that's literally all he's done for the last eight years. It's just been yeah. insane. And every he has. Since Nightcrawler, he's been but nuts. But this, this just feels 
you know, like unbridled. Like he really took off the uh, Nightcrawler. There's a lot more nuance maybe to what he's doing here. It's just like, uh, you know, you, I'm a crazy. You heard that everyone, guy. Scott, wants less nuance in your performances. In a that's Michael what, Bay chase movie? Yes, I do. I, <laughs> there's no reason to. But, so, uh, next, but that, so this summer, Transformers film, Anthony Ramos, if he's unhinged, that's best right. actor. That's right. <laughs> next year. My point is, for a movie as frenetic and yeah. just, you know, going out there like this movie is and the drone shots sure. and everything and just going nuts you need somebody at the center who is understood the assignment and Jake I, I saw this in IMAX and was literally nauseated several times by some of the drone shots <laughs> unbelievable the mentioning of drone shots reminds me of when Scott Shelton spoiled the movie Baccarat for people in the 2020 episode but anyway that's a whole other story. wow that's definitely something we all remember. Yeah, I don't, I was like, I remember, man, I don't even remember it. I, I literally had to think about what it, what you were even talking about for a second. <laughs> I didn't know what movie you were referring to. Yeah, I guess Paul was in that episode. So. Um, all right, moving on. Best original screenplay is our next category. Oh, I had forgotten about that film. I just had to look play. it up and figure out what it was. Oh, my God. Uh, Paul, we're back around to you, I believe, your nominees. Uh, yeah, so my nominees are... Uh, not really in actually i'll put him in alphabetical order my movie why not um i have charlotte wells for after sun i have terrence davies for benediction i have joanna hogg for the eternal daughter and then i have davy chow for return to soul is that only she only had four is that only four i just read five i'm pretty sure oh the fableman steven spielberg tony cushion okay Sorry. <laughs> that was the same scott your nominees sure uh elegance bratton for the inspection Todd Field for Tar, Ruben Osland for Triangle of Sadness, Cooper Rafe for Cha Cha Real Smooth, and Charlotte Wells for After Sun. Both had five totally unique nominees. Um, I had Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner for The Fablemans, Todd Field for Tar, Celine Siama for Petit Maman, uh, Martin McDonough for The Banshees of Inna Sharon, and Jordan Peele for Nope. Um, all right, so what did we have in common? Not really that much. I guess, Paul, you and I both had Charlotte Fable. Did we not have Charlotte Wells? Sorry. I didn't have, yeah, you guys had Charlotte Wells. I didn't have yeah. Charlotte Wells. And Scott, we also had uh, Tar together. But um, the I mean, I picked, three, I picked three movies that I don't think you guys have seen. Or Man, he's firing his hip again, assuming what movies I've seen. <laughs> I haven't, Scott saw The Eternal Daughter, I believe. I haven't I seen did. The Eternal Daughter. I meant Return of Benediction, but maybe he has seen it. Yeah, I haven't seen Benediction. That's true. Um, as far as the ones we had in common, uh, we can start with the Fablemans. Um, Paul, you and I both had it. You know, I, I think it, it's interesting just to hear about the process of the movie and the fact that, um, you know, Steven Spielberg kind of felt like he couldn't write the movie himself, uh, which it was probably for the best that um, he, uh, you know, ended up getting Tony Kushner to, you know, obviously depict the story that is so personal to him and um yeah i just love there there's just so much in you know packed into this movie and you know even the like straightforward sentiment or whatever that you you think you're going to get from a spielberg movie there's there's more to it than that i i keep coming back to that opening scene and you know you have uh his father explaining you know the science side of movies to him and then his mother pulling him over and you know she has these kind of like what you might describe as like cornball sentiments of like you know movies or or dreams that you never forget or whatever but um you know that scene is just establishing the characters right from the beginning and establishing you know the tension that is within sammy throughout the entire movie that you know he's 
drawn to both of these sides and in the same way drawn to both people but also you know it's pulling him apart from the other person but also you know he would not be the genius filmmaker that he is if it wasn't for the fact that he had both of these competing you know values inside of him um and for somebody who is not spielberg again you know this is an autobiographical film but for you know a person who is not the person that is it is about to it feels like get to the truth of spielberg's entire career in this movie is pretty remarkable yeah i mean he hasn't written a movie in over 20 years and i think like obviously it's personal in a very direct way but i think you can feel his themes come even more to a head um one of the most interesting things to me too is that you can feel Sam, the sammy character his focus shift and he's trying to maintain focus on the things that he loves and things he wants to spend time on but then you can feel it fragmenting as his family sort of start, life starts to fall apart and i think that the way that it falls apart i think is really elegant and, um, written and designed and i think like structurally i like i like separating the sort of childhood like the early childhood into his sort of teen years and that transitional phase and how his relationship to his parents and the way he sees his parents totally changes as he sort of sees them more for who they are as anyone does i think when they grow a little older um, and the way that it concludes too i think it stops at the right point in his journey i think so yeah um and then scott as you mentioned you and paul both had after son what do you want to say about uh that one yeah, I, I think I talked about this a lot when, when we discussed it on the podcast, but I just felt like the writing of this film is one of the great feats of it. There are great performances as well, and you know maybe we'll even talk about some of those performances in other parts of the film later, but it really, watching this film for the first time and then even again on the rewatch, I just found it to have that sort of special factor of writing that it's able to unfurl the sort of, you know, mystery in quotation marks of the narrative and of the film in just such a brilliant and affecting way that it's really sets it apart from other films um and it's in in the screenplay department for me i think i compared it to things like arrival and other and other films that sort of have this sort of critical mystery not in like the thriller sense but in the dramatic sense um at the heart of the film and the way that it's able to almost dance around it in a very compelling way until you come at your own time to the realization of what the film is actually about is probably my like top of my list. This is the, this is the thing that gets me the most in watching movies. And in that sense, what Charlotte Wells was able to accomplish and piecing together her, her story here in after sun is it's just one of those experiences that I, I won't forget the first time I watched the movie because of that, because it's just such an affecting realization. Um, for me, when I when I realized exactly everything that was going on in the film, so I can't praise it highly enough. Yeah, I I really love when a movie has a moment where you sort of realize that the movie's been about this thing the whole time, and it was sort of hidden in plain sight a little bit, which is yeah. kind of what you're alluding to. Um, what the movie doesn't say and what the characters don't say is just as important as what they do say, and I think like the way the way that it doles out information so minimally is like and just an amazing feat of writing i think um the way that it does not try to shovel these things all at one time that a lot of it's through action um and not necessarily through words and the way that it's able to communicate so many things with small little moments is 
it's kind of a miracle. And I think that the movie is pretty unimpeachable and on almost all fronts for me, I think. And the way that it's written, I think really amplifies everything else and lets everything else kind of breathe. But that correlationship is just like, it's everything. And um, it's not just in, you know, stuff like performance. It's also in the way that it's designed. And that's, I think, you know, an, an amazing and then, thing and a list of amazing things. And the other one that we shared was Scott and I both had Todd Field for Tar, of course. Yeah, I mean, I'll just spoil it. This is my winner for sure. Um, I think this is an amazing screenplay along with Blanchett's performance. It's, you know, those are the two things which kind of made this the film of the year for me. Um, the way that it is able to navigate all these topics with, um, you know, so much ambiguity and nuance. I love the ambiguity of the entire film again. It's never forcing you to feeling a particular way. It's never oversimplifying the issues uh, or the characters that it um, is portraying. And it's just written with so much intellect. Uh, again, I just love the the listening to the dialogue, like the opening scene, like even though it's just Adam Godnick and, and Tar talking, and sure, some of it is Blanchett's performance, but also like the dialogue is so rich and kind of like with Fablemans from the very first scene, they're setting up so many of the major ideas from the movie in that conversation. And I could just listen to that conversation. I could, I, for, you know, hours practically. I wanted to be in that audience watching the, the talk. Um, so I can't say enough good things about it. It's one of the, it's a screenplay that feels like, even though um, it could only have been written in the last few years because of some of the topics that it, it covers, it feels like it took Todd Field like the whole 16 years or whatever between making movies to write this. Like that is kind of the, the depth. Um, it feels like he poured over every single word in this. All right. Well, I spoiled my winner there. Let's sure. uh, let's go around. Uh, Paul, your winner and other nominees. Yeah. So I guess I'll just lead with my winner up top. Uh, my winner is Ben is Terrence Davies for Benediction. The this man's life and the way that it takes it takes essential pieces from it and imbues it also with the political history of the time and the way that it shifts throughout different periods of time when he's older when he's being played by peter capaldi or when he's the jack loden character for most of it now it interplays some of this real life war footage and everything it's just astounding to me what it communicates about him as a about sassoon as a person and him as a figure and these moments that change the way that he sees people and the way that he's able to empathize with people who are in different life circumstances from him and the things that he's willing to fight for and the things that he's not willing to fight for and the mistakes that he made and the things he has to live with are to me like just remarkable pieces of, of, of writing from Terrence Davies, who's a, a filmmaker that I like a lot, but can sometimes overwrite, I think some of his movies, but to me, it's so elegant and, portrayal of this man is just fascinating and it's a it's a figure that you would think it seems like there's not really a movie there it's just like a guy who is a poet and objected to the war who is in the service and it's just kind of like his ups and downs of life and his relationships with people but um all of those moments have have their piece to sort of make him who he is ultimately um and then my other nominee is just to kind of shout them out real quickly the eternal daughter you know i've talked a lot about joanna hogg on this podcast um she just makes things i think that are so personally vulnerable in a way that does not feel kind of maudlin to me um 
and the way that, again, the information is sort of doled out and the things that are revealed about this character and who she is and has been and the idea of like this manor or this hotel as like a, a place that preserves like the memory of a person and about how being in a space can take you back to your time with a person. Um, that stuff I found to be pretty overwhelming. And then Return to Soul is a, it's just an incredible movie about sort of how your relationship to a place um, and to your culture can change as your life circumstances change. And um, it's this character that I think is really a hard person to navigate and to nail down, but the way that it transitions between those different phases of her life, I think are so smooth. And again, it's a thing that communicates so many things just by subtle actions from the main character. Um, and it's a pretty, yeah, it's, you guys should definitely see it. It's a big recommend, but the screenplay and the screenplay is a big reason why. I will be seeing it, but unfortunately, it's not coming out here till April. So maybe it'll show up in next year's awards for me, uh, just like Petite Maman did. But Scott, It'll be about uh, when you saw Petite Maman last year. I guess it was in May. Yeah, it, it was in May. Yeah. In May. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Scott, you want to run down yours? Yeah, for sure. So I also had Todd Field for Tar. Uh, you, you were talking about it there, but was you know a big a big win for me as well. I think that you the, what you were saying around it felt like he's been writing this script simultaneously he only could have written this recently because it feels so like relevant temporally but also so polished that he must have been writing this for like a decade i totally feel that and this as well and i just think that it's just so finely tuned there's so much to benefit from on a rewatch that you realize that he's doing with the script um things that people say earlier on translating later it's just there's so many details throughout the whole film where I don't know. It's kind of impossible to it, to me. It just feels sort of impossible to deny the 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 mastery of the of the craft there from him. Ruben Oslin for a Triangle of Sadness. This is a film that I I don't know about <coughs> Paul, but I know Scott is not the biggest fan of. And I just think that I haven't I haven't seen it. Yet. You actually haven't seen it. I think no. that it's sort of it's sort of like an, an almost anthology like movie. It, it does have several characters that are consistent throughout the whole film. Harris Dickinson being one of them. Charlie Dean being the other. And so it's not an anthology in that sense, but it, it sort of takes essentially it's three acts and says, here are three different perspectives on power dynamics and how they manifest themselves in different ways in society. The very flashy and also most obvious one is the wealth dynamic that that is sort of, I feel like so many advertisements of the movie sort of have this sort of boats, the yacht sequence in the film, the sequence of, of you know excess and obviously some very um, visceral things happening on, on the boat, shall we say. But I think that there is so much more um, at work here in the script, not necessarily in, in very nuanced and fine details coming to light over the course of the film, like maybe some of the other nominees that we've been talking about. But I do think that it's a very, almost, a, I think I thought it was a very intelligent um, sort of unfurling of how different socioeconomic status plays into power dynamics, how, you know, power dynamics work in relationships and then how they work when things are sort of turned on their head. And I, I'm not going to go here here and explain the thesis of the film, um, but I do think that it's a very intelligent look at that. And it could have been really easy to make the whole film about the centerpiece that I think people sort of like point at and laugh about and be like, well, duh. Um, but I think when you when you really put that next to the other two parts of the film, it's saying something a lot more interesting to me. So I really enjoyed um, Triangle of Sadness for that reason. Cooper Rafe's Cha-Cha Real Smooth. I, 
I feel like I also got like a reaction a little bit when I when I said that nominee. Maybe maybe I'm just reading into things, but I just think that that film affected me on such a personal level, like making me feel seen in a way that not many other movies are able to able to accomplish in terms of experiences or experiences that just resonate so deeply that even if it might be easy to point out flaws in things that Cooper Rafe does and Cooper things that Cooper Rafe brings to his his you know now two films that he's made i also find something a bit undeniable about you know at the end of the day when i watched this movie for the second time and then when i watched it for the third time it, it still affected me in the same way and it still made me feel like well i don't feel like i've seen too many films that really seem to understand the type of experiences that i've had over the last you know, five to ten years or whatever um so really found that to be powerful and then the last one to talk about which is I, has anyone else seen the inspection getting getting shaking heads this is this was the closing night film at the new york film festival i don't even know if it's really been released widely to be honest which is maybe the reason why you all haven't haven't seen it but elegance bratton is the writer director of the film it's about it's semi if not completely autobiographical well, i can't be completely autobiographical semi-autobiographical um about his time right before he joined the military and in the, in the military and it would have been really easy as a gay black man i think to write a very specific kind of story and that would have also been somewhat true to his experience in the military about being uh, discriminated against for both his race and also his sexual orientation. Um, and there certainly is a lot of elements of seeing that level of, of hate and discrimination in the film, but his perspective on his time in the military is just like so much richer and more and more nuanced than I think like, you know, culture warriors or whatever might want to take up and say like, this is the problem with the military and how it disrespects, you know, minorities, people of color, um, you know, homophobia, things like that. And the fact that he acknowledges that that exists and what his experience was and saying that there were certain elements that experience that made it bigger and were more important to him than those elements. I just think it really creates this melting pot of a movie that yes, is conflicting at times, but also clearly clear in its message that like without this experience, he would not probably still be alive today. And I think that that's like something that's like just an incredibly powerful form of filmmaking when you could take something that could have been really easy to make one dimensional and create so much complexity in the experience. And that's what sort of makes it feel so much more true to life and real than something that has a very clear message on its mind that could have easily been accomplished. Uh, all that said, Charlotte Wells, I mean, probably wasn't surprising to hear that After Sun wins my best original screenplay after what I was saying about it earlier. Just, yeah, one of the most magical pieces of writing for the year for me. Yeah, I mean, I've already given my thoughts on my uh, winter tar, so I'll be really quick. Um, the Banshee's been a Sharon, and actually, Petit Maman both are movies that I feel like the writing is deceptively simple, but actually, some of these lines weigh a ton. Um, yeah. Just like even from like the Banshee's been a Sharon, you know, like the just the central idea that oh well, you don't like me today, but you liked me yesterday. But actually, did you like me yesterday, right? Like just these very basic sort of emotional concepts, uh, but they're explored with such, you know, depth and authenticity. Um, I think Martin McDonough in general has a really, you know, um, good ear for that sort of thing of writing these characters who, again, talk very in a very straightforward way, um, but are actually saying a lot more or, you know, talking with a lot more wisdom than maybe even they realize, but, um, and Petite Maman as well, again, very simple sentiments because it's children who are doing most of the talking, although, you know, the, the main 
character Nelly is a little bit more precocious than your average eight-year-old, I guess. But um, still, um, you know, the you didn't invent my sadness, those kind of ideas are um, really resonate with me. And then Nope, just another classic, uh, you know, Jordan Peele blending um, great genre with, um, you know, commentary in this case about sort of exploitation, representation, spectacle, um, yeah. you know, just so, so much that he packs into a rip roaring sci-fi film. So I yeah. And in, in a lot of ways, probably, probably his most challenging script to write. I mean, it's because of that blending that you're talking about, it feels like it's a real feat to be able to nest some of those ideas in the spectacle that he's also yeah. trying to accomplish. It's not always so straight in a movie that's about spectacle about spectacle. yeah yeah it was really interesting to hear him talk about he felt that nope was his most personal film when i got the chance to listen to him talk about the film at a q a all right moving on best supporting actress maybe nope is going to come up here maybe not um scott oh, shelton supporting actress you, go, or... you, you kick us off yeah what, what are you gonna what are you gonna nominate barbie ferrera for supporting actress in this movie <laughs> Um, Carrie Condon for The Banshees of Inisherin, uh, Regina Hall for Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, Nina Haas for Tar, Janelle Monet for Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery, and Lashana Lynch for The Woman King. All right. Uh, my nominees for Best Supporting Actress are Dakota Johnson in Cha Cha Real Smooth, Kristen Stewart in Crimes of the Future, uh, Frankie Corio in After Sun. Uh, no. Lee in Broker and Rachel Sennett in Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Laugh it up, guys. I'm not well, laughing. Fraud alert. Fraud alert. I, 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 I have her in a different category. That's what I want. I'm not I know, laughing. and that's, per I'm not that's perfectly fine. That's perfectly fine. Should we talk about her now? I don't know. That's, this is hard. <laughs> I don't know. It's all good. We're good. Uh, she didn't win, so we can talk about it later if you want. Paul. Oh, man. I have a last-minute gut-check decision to make. So I guess I'll make it at the end. So I have Carrie Condon for The Banshees of Inishirin. I have Anne Hathaway for Armageddon Time. I have Haley Lee Richardson for After Yang. I have Kristen Stewart for Crimes of the Future. And then I will go with Hong Chow from The Menu for my fits. Um, Not for showing up. All right, noted. No. 2023 film showing up. Um, all right, so let's see. What did we have in common there? Uh, I know that Paul and I had Kristen Stewart in common. Carrie Condon. Carrie Condon. Um, yeah. I guess it. Should we talk about Kristen Stewart in the same way that she speaks in the film? I don't think any of us could ac ac accurately capture that, probably. Yeah, but, do it. Uh, I won't try. Yeah, just uh, such a fun performance, honestly. I mean, the scene where she tries to seduce... So horny. Vigo Mortensen's yeah. Saul Tensor is unreal, honestly. Um, it feels like she's becoming someone who is kind of can do whatever, you know, can, can operate in so many different fields. Um, and that's what I really appreciate about her as an actress. I think she's becoming one of my favorite actresses, honestly. But she just, again, full send. Like, this is, again, like like Gyllenhaal and Ambulance. Full send. Like, she com commits to the sicko universe that... Cronenberg is creating here and um, the way she delivers those lines, the odd sort of seductiveness that her character has. And um, yeah, I was all in on everything that she was doing in this role. Yeah. She has that insane whispery tenor of her voice that I think is like so intoxicating in the way that she delivers 
like, I mean, obviously, like, the whole monologue about surgery is the new sex. Like, that's like, sort of, it's iconic. But I think particularly the scene that you mentioned where she, like, doesn't know what she's trying to say. And I love the nervous sort of ticky behavior that she does with her hands and her acting that I think, like, anytime she's on the screen, I just can't look at anything else or listen to anything else. It's like, I'm just like fixated on her because her, she has this like black hole, like energy almost. And like, not really in a way that takes away from the film, but I think really adds like a different element to it that you just won't get that performance from any other actor around. And I love her leaning into the bizarre so much. And it's like, again, like a perfect kind of perform supporting performance for me where it's like, she's given this weirdo energy, but she's, you know, then taking a step back and sort of letting the, the movie be what it is. Yeah, she is. But again, I still came away from the movie being like, I wanted more of her, um, which fair enough. But I think it's um, the perfect amount. I think it's like a des nice yeah. dessert where you don't want to eat too much of it. You know, it's like perfectly. Dull. That's probably true. If we had gotten more, that's that's probably true. Um, Just imagine if she Scott, were bones and all, man. <laughs> She'd have eaten plenty. Scott, you want to talk about Carrie Condon, which you and Paul shared, and was close for me. Sure. Uh, you know, for, for me, I actually thought she was the best part of the Banshees of Inisherin. Maybe that's not a controversial take, but I really enjoyed the sort of like the restlessness of her existence on Inisherin. That that sort of felt like the performance that resonated most with me as as someone who came um, from an area like before college that I felt like, oh, like there's these other things that I, I want to go try and want to go be a part of um, and, and figure out how that works for me. Like I, I sort of, obviously I was much earlier in life than she is in, in this film, but I, I really sort of connected with that energy, not to the extent that it goes to, because obviously she's been there for years and has been feeling this pent up tension for years. And I, I didn't have that experience personally, but I think that that desire to seek out what else is out there for you in the world um, that's some, that's some, definitely something that I've that I've connected with in that film and and that I've experienced in the past and you know I just think that she brings so much brilliance and there's she's such a it's such a sharp performance too in that like she's so critical and is able to sort of lash out with these barbs both at Barry Keegan's character but also Colin Farrell's as well um, Dominic and Podrick and I think that it's so it's so great to see those lashes. Um, when she's very prickly and then, but she also has this ability to sort of flip the switch and, and become quite tender at moments as well. And I thought that the range of performance in the film for me was something that really captivated me and ended up being my favorite part of the film to the, to the point where I was like kind of sad when she left. And I was like, man, I know this is like towards the end of the movie, but I, this is my favorite character. And the fact that, you know, she's not going to be really in the movie anymore was, was a bit of a disappointment when that happened, but it, obviously you, it, it's, it's coming for a while in the, in the film and it, it thematically makes a lot of sense. Um, beautiful, beautiful work from her. Yeah. I think the thing you talk about with her modulating her performance is really key in the scene I mentioned earlier with Barry Keegan, where she yeah, knows this is a very delicate matter to him and, regardless of what results from the conversation like the way that she approaches it is very warm and not yeah. like callous she's like so she can she should yeah and yeah. she can be right yeah. but i also love like her line reading of when he when she's like was i ever wild like when he asked her if she was ever if she had her kind of wild single days Just, uh, yeah and, um, absolutely uh flat that, with, su fun. with support with supporting actors i think line readings are a pretty big part of, of what the appeal as you probably can see with some of my other nominees um but her in particular, I think, was just was just really incredible, and I think I agree with a lot of what you're saying about her her character. I think those might have been the only commonalities we had. Um, 
good category. It must be said just in general. Really good Impossible. category. I literally just, I had like eight names on this and I had to cross yeah. three of them off at the very last minute. It was painful. Scott, um, I'm going to throw it to you. Run through sure. the rest and uh, hate your winner. Yeah. Uh, Regina Hall for Honker to be the savior. So I, this was also one of those that was just like so close being like a good performance in a bad movie, but I couldn't quite bring myself to say it was a bad movie. It was like not a it's great, not it was not a good movie, but I don't know if it was a bad movie um for, for me but i think she's sort of she really plays well with the filmmaking style of honk for jesus savior so like she's she totally like leans into the sort of behind the scenes like wink at the camera a little bit nature of that sort of mockumentary type genre and i think she just really she really cooks well with those ingredients and she takes that she plays with it you get sort of this like you know candid sort of look at her and, and she's able to play that sort of like candid exasperated tortured almost wife of this almost like you know, disgraced pastor so well and i don't know it just was a it was a real breath of fresh air when i watch when i watch that movie because i i do think that the film like gets quite a bit um take, takes quite a few wrong steps over the course of it but i never really felt like she was going off the path um in, in the film Janelle Monet for Glass Onion Knives Up Mystery. I, I wrestled whether this, she was a leader supporting for me. I'll be honest, like I wasn't 100% sure. I actually probably in the grants, you know, thinking about it at a more meta level, I, I wish I could have just put her in actress because I kind of feel what Paul was saying there. There's so many people I could have thrown in to this category. Anne Hathaway was another one, Paul, that you have. That was like so, like probably my first one out for me on this list. Uh, but Janelle Monet, I think, is really wonderful. I think the more times I've watched Glass Onion, the more times I feel like. I really connect with the nuances. She's like spicing the up the her like dual performance of um, Andy and Helen with, and the fact that uh, there are those small little details. A you know comes down to some of the writing, of course, to, for Ryan Johnson to seed that in to the structure of the film, but also comes down to her being able to execute that as well. And so I really enjoyed that performance. Sort of really lived up to the to the legacy, if if such a word is correct, of Ana de Armas and and knives out to have this like leading leading female role that is sort of really able to be the focal point of the film and let Daniel Craig just do his own thing and and be wild in the film. So I really appreciate her for that. And Lashana Lynch, probably one of the biggest surprises for me, not expecting to be so wowed by her performance in The Woman King and then coming out of it and being like, people talking about Viola Davis, man, people should be talking about Lashana Lynch. Um, so such a good performance. Definitely the one that I, I think spoke to me the most not in terms of specific experiences but i just really like i really felt what she was she, doing she was she was film. my favorite in the movie as well her presence was like just unmistakable yeah absolutely and um yeah i don't know if i want to say too much more about that performance but if you're going to go see the woman king like you're going to be treated to a really spectacular performance by lashana lynch and i think she ends up being much a much better mentor type figure to um is it to so in Beidou? is that yeah yeah um who's sort of the lead of the film along with Viola Davis. Um, yeah, and then my winner, Nina Haas from Tar. I think a, a performance that I that I really liked the first time and I was able to key even more in on on the second watch. I think her character of... Her character, Sharon, I think is... At first, I think at a, at a very surface level read, you're sort of able to be like, she's kind of a, a, one of the victims, like one of Tar's victims in the film. But like the film just has like so much more on its mind about what's going on with everyone in Tar's orbit. I think maybe most of all, Sharon. And the fact that she 
she's not an accomplice of what Tara has been doing, but um, she's certainly someone who's taken advantage of it and has certainly um, played played Tar for her benefit as well over the course of the film. And I think you really see that sprinkled throughout once you're able to hone in and really focus on what's going on with some of the finer details outside of Kate Blanchett's performance, which I do think is just like so utterly arresting um, the first time you watch the film. But yeah, Nina Haas, spectacular. She took it for me. Um, incredibly strong category this year though like really really strong category it was tough to choose her yeah i mean i struggled hard just between nina haas and noemi merlant from the sure. same movie um yeah. ended up not choosing either of them maybe because it wasn't <laughs> yeah. hard split the maybe because it split wasn't hard yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I split the baby and chose none of them um but um anyway uh dakota johnson cha-cha real smooth was on my list um yeah i think she is able to uh you know pivot out of this being a sort of manic pixie dream girl character like i think um she brings a lot of vulnerability and also just a a weirdness a little bit to the the character i think she has a slightly chaotic uh presence on screen a little bit too um like even just like when they're eating ice pops and like i don't know the way she's acting during that scene and um delivering her lines in a sort of slow like pensive way almost it, it's different it's it's a weird um, sort of angle on the character a little bit. And like I said, she brings a lot of humanity to it um, that, uh, you know, it helps it, you know, I think the writing is good enough to where the character doesn't come off as that, you know, Manny Pixie Dream Girl. But again, there is that tendency, you know, you have a movie written by this 24-year-old dude who is writing a movie where he character romances Dakota Johnson, right? Like, um, and Odea Rush, Let's, let us not forget. Yeah, true. <laughs> um, but to uh, Dakota Johnson's, you know, credit, I never felt like that, um, you know, this character was like fetishized or anything like that. I think, um, you know, she uh, she shows a lot of skill in navigating around that um, stereotype. Um, Rachel Sennett, speaking of chaotic, uh, Rachel Sennett and Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Um, yeah. Uh, perfect casting, honestly. You, you know, this movie could have gone wrong in so many ways with its like you know, heavily sort of Gen Z winky winky dialogue. Um, but Rachel Sennett is like, she is like the the face of that, you know, sort of uh, lingo generation, whatever you want to say in, in a lot of ways. And so like it, the dialogue just sounds right coming out of her mouth, right? Like it doesn't feel like somebody who is trying to talk in a language that they don't. Your parents know. are upper middle class. Exactly. Um, like, I don't even know how much acting she really had to do for this role, but, um, you know, re regardless, um, a, a very fun performance and the standout from an ensemble that is generally, you know, good, very good across the board. But I think it's, it's, uh, it's hard to deny that she is sort of the, the centerpiece here. Um, Pete we'll talk about man. Frank. I should have had Frank him supporting Frank. actor. I can't believe I forgot him. Left him off the list. He was we'll funny. About Frank. He was funny. He was good. We'll talk about Frankie Corio later, it sounds like. And then my winner is Ji-Un Lee, also known as IU from Broker, actually, um, getting in there at the, the final hurdle. Um, yeah, I was really surprised by how moved I was by her performance. Again, I came into the movie expecting, you know, Song Kang-ho kind of is going to be the guy that the movie is centered around. It is sort of an ensemble movie, though, in general. And, uh, and honestly, hers was the one that um resonated the strongest with me paul mentioned the scene already earlier but that ferris wheel scene is kind of incredible um and 
I don't actually spoiler mild spoiler. I don't have it in my top ten scenes at the moment, but I honestly might put it in there before the end of the episode. You didn't have to. I was gonna say you didn't have to say anything. You could have just changed your mind and not said it. Yeah, I, I think I might be talking myself into it. But um, I rewatched it a little bit before this, and I was like, man, this is just so good. Yeah, just the she has a stare like her eyes. She has a stare that like conveys so much. Um, and. You know, the Ferris wheel scene again, like she is navigating a lot of complex emotions and I mean, throughout the entire movie, but, you know, of regret, obviously, she, you know, leaves her child behind, but also she's a victim of circumstance in a lot of ways. Um, you know, there's this question of, is she a bad mother or not? That is dominating so much of the movie. Um, and in that scene, you know, she is with, um, what's his name gong gong wan's character gong, um, gong wan. yeah. yeah his character and there's like they share this moment together of you know kind of like what could have been in a way like she the the way that she's looking at him with like the sadness in her eyes again um knowing that in a different you know world this is what she could have had right like she he's literally holding her child he's saying like hey we can all parent your son together or whatever um, but you know, she can never go back to that because, um, of the situation that she was put in, um, when she, you know, killed this client of hers, as we learned, but, um, but yeah. Um, and, and then also just like the moment in the scene where, um, he's like covering her eyes, like, you know, that is, uh, supposed to be like the example of what it's going to look like on the news or whatever when she gets arrested, you know, they're going to obscure her face or whatever. And then, you know, she, he reveals it. Um, and she's like shedding a single tear as she is sort of, you know, again, reflecting on her situation. Really impressive for somebody who this is her first major role. Like she is a huge K-pop star, like a massive K-pop star. Um, and she gets maybe the biggest role. Certainly I would say like the most important role in this movie. Um, you know, from a from a very noted Japanese director and killed it. Paul? Yeah, so um, Scott mentioned Anne Hathaway. Uh, she is, to me, such a great performance, partly maybe because I think some of the other performances in the movie are not quite on her level in terms of the emotional depth that she provides. I think that there is a level of, of fear in her, I think, on a moment-to-moment -moment basis that you just don't get from other people, and it's a lot of it's the precarious sort of financial position their family is in. And she just seems like she's really tired and stressed and she communicates all that without being overly dramatic, without doing all of these crazy gestures. It's really just about her expression. A lot of the times the way that she talks differently to her son, then she talks to Jeremy Strong's character. Then she talks to her, her family, um, like Anthony Hopkins and everything. Um, those differences to me are, are really amazing. And she's an actress that, I, I really like and I find myself like, you know, quote unquote, like defending a lot, but I think that she's really coming into her own in sort of the second cycle of her career. Um, and she's kind of hitting her stride in a way that I think is really pretty amazing. Um, Hong Chow in the menu, I think is just incredible line after incredible line. Her contempt for the businessman in particular to me is like some of the funniest things in any movie this entire year. Um, I didn't love the movie in general, but I think, Every time she's on screen, I find myself fixated on whatever's happening. Um, she brings, a, again, a different mood than everyone else. And so I think like she sort of like throws off some of the social balance in a way that I really, really like. Like she clearly like does, is, does not have patience for these people and is not 
catering to like their needs in terms of like their literal needs, but also like their social needs, the way that they normally interact with each other. She sort of like takes a battering ram and breaks down those kind of social rules. And I think that performance is just incredible. She's an actress, I think, that is really, really great. It's interesting that she's being nominated for her performance in The Whale, um, but I think the one in the menu is the um, the one that I really resonated with. Um, and then Haley Richardson, an actress I am a big fan of in general, but her character, the way that she embodies the ethic of the movie, um, when you sort of, when you come to understand her relationship with Yang and after Yang, to me, is everything. Um, just the way that she looks at him sometimes communicates a lifetime, that one memory where they're at the concert and just the way that she glances over at him to me, like communicates everything you want to know about the entire movie, essentially in that, in that short moment, the way that she's obviously different because it's sort of like a different person in a way, cause she's like a life model and that stuff is, is amazing. Um, but my one is Carrie Condon. We sort of talked about her earlier. Um, to me, she's the heart and soul of the movie. Same thing as Scott Sheldon. I think she's my favorite performance in the entire movie, and that's saying a lot from a movie that features one of my favorite actors of all time, giving a pretty great performance too. But um, she is like everything that is good and interesting about the movie and all the stuff that I think – the reason I didn't nominate for screenplay, I think there's some I, – I bumped a little bit on some of the thematic elements, but I think everything with her character is on point. Um, that that kind of longing for like a different place, I think that – but also like her comfortability with being there and her warmness towards her brother, but also her willingness to confront him about his insecurities and his issues. Um, it's hard probably being the smartest person in the room and like it, not being able to really express it in a proper way. I love when she corrects Colm about, Mo about when Mozart was alive and all those little moments, I think, that make her performance like so, so special. And I, I really hope that, that she wins the Academy Award. If she doesn't, it, it's fine. You know, she's it's an incredible performance worth celebrating anyway. But um, she's someone that I didn't wasn't super familiar with before, and now I just I really the Highlander guy now. Outlander, can't get Highlander. There. Which one is it? Outlander. Outlander. Highlander is the movie from the eighties with the right, yeah, Sean Connery, Christopher Lambert. Christopher Lambert. You got a lot of you got a lot of Carrie Condon content to consume with all those seasons. They got like thirty seasons of that show, right? Yeah, I'm not a horny twenty year old twenty five year old woman, unfortunately. So. Um, can't quite get Ouch. there with, with Outlander, um, but no, she's she's great in, in Banshees. Haley Richardson was really, really, really close. That's like a down to the wire race for me. But Gary Condon just edged her out by, by here. Great choices. Anne Hathaway, though. Can yeah, we talk about Anne Hathaway? Man, since since Interstellar, Thin Ice. She's been on Thin Ice. I feel like Ocean's Eight, bro. She's amazing in Ocean's Eight. She, uh, yes, that, she's incredible. In that yeah, movie. I mean, sure. I'm like that's not a that's not a bit. She She's runs like, away with the movie, like not even close. She yeah. runs away with the movie, but the movie is mediocre. <laughs> like, but then she's in Dark Waters, which the part's not great. Barely. But she is I mean, the, barely in Dark she, Waters. She has like, one good scene in Dark Waters. <laughs> All we can hope for in life is one good scene, I guess. So, I was I'm yeah. I'm really glad that we got some Dark Waters discourse in here. But anyway, <laughs> uh, sure. yeah. We're, we're, guys, we're leaving out the hustle, the witches. The last thing she's good in the witches. She's good in the witches. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. All right, HBO Max. Last thing he wanted, never, never forget. That was was that was that your was that your worst of the year or was that Aaron James? I know one of us mentioned it. I have seen in, in since starting this podcast is that movie. the witches does not exist anymore, right? It's gone. Well, it like it's not on Max. They're they're, they're sub licensing it to like Tubi. It's just going to be on a free Xbox service. <laughs> it's going to exist. They did it to Westworld. They just sub licensed Westworld. Yeah. 
All right, uh, moving on. Uh, best adapted screenplay. This is going to be interesting because this is probably the thinnest category this year. But anyway, I will. You, start. Kept, you kept saying this in the chat, and I don't disagree, but I feel like you were being a little harsher on it than uh, than it deserves. Okay. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Um, I'll kick things off. Go first. Off. Go first. Uh, my nominees: Oganada for After Yang, uh, Christopher McQuarrie and Co for Top Gun Maverick, uh, Noah Baumbach for White Noise. Uh, Ryan Johnson, Class Onion Knives Out Mystery, and Lena Dunham for Catherine Called Birdie. Paul, right. you. Yeah, so I had Aaron Kruger, Eric Warren Singer, and Christopher McQuarrie, all the credited screenwriters for the film Top Gun Maverick, all the people who worked so hard to put the script together. I just wanted to give credit to those hardworking um, young men. Um, oh my God. I also had Lena Dunham for Catherine Called Birdie. I also had Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig for White Noise. Um, I had David Ketchganik for Bones and All. And then I had Kogonata for After You. Man, we, we really we really are the Top Gun Maverick stands. Uh, I love it. Just keep getting surprised that it keeps getting triple, triple nominated across us here. Uh, so I had also, um, I guess, I, since I don't, who cares about these orders anymore? Aaron Kruger, Eric Horn Singer, and Christopher McQuarrie for Top Gun Maverick. I had Ryan Johnson for Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery. I had Koganada for After Yang. I had George Miller and Augusta Gore for 3,000 Years of Longing. And I had Matt Reeves and Peter Craig for The Batman. Yeah, I think we got all the best choices, if I'm being quite honest, from this category. <laughs> you don't, there were some not, good ones that were close-ish. Close you're not in the back for, for me, Sarah Polly. You're not, you're not in? No, I'm I'm not. I'm sorry. I, I mean, I, I want to see some of her other work, but that movie just didn't do it for me. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway. Uh, I'm surprised so you didn't put, it. Scott, straight up, I'm surprised you didn't put, did, maybe I, I wasn't 100% paying attention because I was trying to figure out something. Pearl? Did you have Pearl on your list? No, it, I the screenplay is not a standout element of the movie for me, but. Um, Wasn't the best part of the film a, a monologue though, where someone was reading a lot of? But that words was from more because of that was more because of her performance. That was because of her performance. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Best part of the movie was when it was over, because then the movie was over. <laughs> well, yeah, whatever. I can't. Uh, I, I can't really slander it properly. I fell asleep at it at Tiff, and I have not I watched. Gonna, I have not watched it. Since. You fell like asleep that, at but... it. Yeah. It was oh, my fifth movie. It was my fifth movie of the day, and it, I was really, I was just gassed, man. It was over mm. for me. It was like it was like ten. It's like a ten thirty screening, or no? It was like eleven thirty screening. I was like, "Yeah, this is gonna be rough." That was me watching Strawberry Mansion as like six movie of the day at Sundance in twenty twenty one. I was like, "Should I really be watching this?" <laughs> I heard that's great. I mean, um, that's that's that person's opinion that you heard that. That from. is an opinion. Yeah. Uh, all right. Um, let's talk about some of the ones we all had. We all had Koganata, obviously, for After Yang. Um, who wants to jump in here? I'll do it. I did it. There, I raised my hand. Um, I feel like I was the last person to come to Koganada on uh, of this trio, mainly because Scott Harvey is the one who showed me Columbus a few years back, back 2019 probably-ish. I think we watched it. Um, and I assume, Paul, that you were already familiar. I'm just assuming that you were already familiar with him before that uh, time. I came. used to watch his, his video essays on YouTube before he was a filmmaker. So, yes. There you go. The OG right there. Um, so, yeah, so I, I came late to Columbus, but was just, like, incredibly, extremely moved by that film. Some similarities, I think, to like why the Carrie Condon performance moved me are, are sort of laced into that film. Um, and there's so many other elements as well. But just something about the, 
the filmmaking and and the, the, the themes and the topics that he's just really diving deep into sometimes directly with the with the with the screenplay but also sometimes just like incredibly complex or nuanced subtext of his film as well i think he's just one of the most brilliant filmmakers at lacing in both direct conversations around the things he's interested in but also indirect ones as well and i think the fact that he's able to i feel like like after yang is like the ultimate example of that like obviously there's the surface read of the movie um you were talking a little bit about when you were talking about Haley richardson's performance in the film paul um but i also just think that there's so much something so much deeper going on in it as well and the fact that he's able to pair what is a very watchable film incredibly watchable film um with exact you know with the more direct stuff of what the actors and actresses are doing on the screen the story that he's telling but also then weave that through with this narrative of you know belonging of what it means to be family what we you know on like having the connections with and understanding those of us around us like these are obviously some sometimes explored very directly but it's almost the sort of like metaphors of the film that resonate with me the most i mean the scene where they're just talking about tea it's just like a ridiculous scene um you know one of my favorite scenes of the year scott was talking about like a you know you know monday morning quarterbacking a you know a pick into his top 10 scenes of the year list and you know i'm not going to say that i'm doing that right now but like that is like right on the cusp of being in the top 10 scenes of the, of the year for me and it's just a beautiful film and the way that he's able to talk about and write about such really like moving and emotionally overwhelming topics in a way that feels just like the best way you could ever talk about those things. Like the most tender and like caring way you could address those topics. I think it's just like, I just don't think that any other writers or filmmakers have it to that degree. I just think that no one else is really able to access that in the same way. Like maybe Ryusuke Hamaguchi, like like maybe a couple filmmakers here and there um, of recent years can access that same level of like gentle emotional depth. Um, and I think that he's able, yes, he's able to do that through the directing and, and through the performances, but I also feel like he does it beautifully through the script itself. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the tea scene. The other scene for me is like the, the, when they're walking through the garden and, sure. you know, uh, Yang yeah. is explaining yeah. to her about, you know, the branches, basically. I mean, that yeah. is one of the, like, most beautiful, just metaphors, simple, yeah. Yeah. yeah, metaphors for what family is, like you're saying, Scott, that, like, I've ever heard, honestly. Um, for sure. Yeah, he, he gets it. Um, Top Gun Maverick, we also all had. Um, sure. And, yeah, I mean, for me, it's like the ideal blockbuster screenplay of, like, just setups and payoffs and every single payoff is like, you know, you just want to pump your fist in the air, honestly. Um, That's what everyone in the theater did around me every time I saw them. Yeah. And, you know, again, also the, the fact that there is this sort of meta layer to it, this sort of cheeky um, Tom Cruise, like, is he past it? Is he over the hill? Right. Like thing that's going on with the character, but also, you know, like, it's also interrogating his own persona as a movie star. And um, it's it's just, it knows what its greatest asset is, right? Which is Tom Cruise. And um, it, you know. And Glenn Powell. Maximizes that. Yeah, sure. It, it maximizes that um, at every turn. So, 
yeah, I mean, it's what you want from a, a blockbuster screenplay. To me, it's kind of a miracle because one of the reasons I think the original Top Gun is not very good is it, it does such a bad job of communicating the stakes of what each specific moment yeah. are. You don't understand what the objectives are, what they're really trying to do. You don't know. And one of the things that's amazing about Top Gun Maverick is they walk you through everything and you understand if this goes this way, that's good. If this goes that's that way, that's bad. And that seems really basic, but they so efficiently cover every single angle so that you're in all times understanding of what the win and lose state is for these people. And you understand. I love that moment too, when you get to the point where they're like, Oh, we only counted for the plan this far. Then we just got to go figure it out. You know, we planned all the way out here and all of a sudden just get home and see what happens. And like, when you realize like, Oh shit, they didn't plan this far in advance. And it was so clearly laid out by the way that they sequence their training and everything. The fact that they literally have a scene of them throwing the book out is also hilarious in and of itself. Um, the interplay between Top Tom Cruise and his underlings and his desire to, to ride, but obviously or to, to fly, but he you know he's not allowed to like. And even the scene with Iceman too is like a, such a delicate version of that thing. Like it's like the original Top Gun would just never have a scene like that. Not that it would make sense to, I guess, but like. It's got these, it improves on basically everything that the original movie is. And that's why the movie, I think, is so successful. Is it like, you know, again, you know what the objective is. Like, they have to hit by this certain time. They have to hit this certain goal. And like, those things matter when you're watching something that's kind of frenetic and energetic and really like driven by the spectacle. Like, you want to know what it's, what's at stake. It's 100% McCory pulling from his Mission Impossible experience of like, yeah, here's, we're, you know, we're setting up, here's what the mission is. Clear stakes, clear, you know, we, we know what everyone is supposed to be doing at all times. Like, it's the stuff you take for, it's the stuff you take for granted when you're watching these movies. What do you name the worst Mission Impossible movie? God, just, anyway. <laughs> it's the stuff you, you take for granted when you're watching these movies, but like when you see a movie that doesn't have it, to, to Paul's point, it's like, Oh, wow, this is really pretty cool. So smart enough not to, like, I mean, it's a simple thing, but not to, like, name the enemy and get into specifics where I think the movie is not suited to handle that kind of thematic heft. Yes. Like, it stays away from the stuff that it knows it's not going to be successful at, which I think it's, it's knowing your limits is important. All right. Um, I'll run down mine and we can go around the horn with the rest of mine. Uh, Noah Baumbach, White Noise. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, some people will raise an eyebrow at this, although I guess Paul had it too, but. Um, it seems like he did the best job that he could. I'm not familiar with the uh, the work, but uh, in the the novel. I mean, I haven't read the novel by Don DeLillo, the supposedly unadaptable beast. But I didn't really have a, a whole lot of trouble tracking the themes of this. Um, you know, it does in in the end. Maybe like you could say that in the third act, things get a little. Um, one one could say that. Yeah, sure, yeah. and and one has said that, but. Um, yeah. That thinks, you know, he's not quite able to navigate it, but, like, I think he's able to, you know, match the story here to his uh, brand of, like, existential, witty comedy, like, so well. Like, you know, the the early, especially the early, like, hour, first hour and a half of this movie, like, the interactions between the family, like, it is one of the funniest movies of the year to me. Um and, you know, about COVID without, like, you know, being ex expressly about COVID, like, you know, he is able to sort of add that context in there. Uh, but it's just fun to listen to these characters talk. Um, 
he writes movies for smart people and adults and like i really just appreciate that it's one of the reasons why he's one of my favorite filmmakers um lena dunham catherine called birdie yeah i mean it's one of those things where you just when the when a when one of these like period pieces has it you know it when it doesn't you know and it's like it has that spark that makes it feel modern and contemporary um and you know doesn't make it a stodgy period drama in particular i think the use of um voiceover in this movie the the narration is really good um obviously some of that is is uh, bella ramsey's performance as well but um you know the it seems like from what i understand that that lena dunham did a really good job of adapting this book and um makes it cinematic um but also true to its roots and you know it it's like i said it, it manages to walk that that thin line of being contemporary while also being period authentic um and so i really you know enjoyed the movie which i was not expecting considering how much i hated her other movie from last year but then the other one i had was ryan johnson glass onion um yeah, mainly just for like the, not not as much for the thematic stuff, for the plotting of the movie. Like I just I think that he has really nailed it in terms of how to craft an entertaining mystery um, that you know has the appropriate twists and um, things that you can pick up on along the way. Again, you know it's a big plot point or it's a big you know repeated line in the movie. Like it's all in plain sight, right? I think he does a really good job of that. Um, and, you know, creates a fun cast of characters yet again as well. So, um, yeah, that's my shout out. And my winner was Top Gun Matter. So uh, we already talked about it. Um, Paul. There you go. Yeah. So to just touch on Catherine called Birdie also, um, I think that it's a difficult line to walk to not make something that's YA about this kind of protagonist annoying. And I think that it skirts around that. I think I love too in movies is when things are played ostensibly silly and then they become emotionally resonant by the end. And it sort of like brings those ideas and some of the character moments full circle to make their relationships like feel real because it's like, they are these goofy characters, but they are also real people at the same time. Um, and I love her relationships with the different characters in the movie. I think like those are really done well where it's not just things servicing her because she is this protagonist of, of like a young adult sort of fan like like fantasy it is like sort of like pretty real in terms of like the push and pull of friendship and um what it means to betray someone and how you can sort of make up for that that stuff i thought was pretty was like pretty remarkable white noise you kind of mentioned it it is pretty much unadaptable and one of the greatest things that Noah bombeck does is he omits certain aspects of the book um there's a mm -hmm. sequence there's a part with the barn in the book a that barn, I, i'm yeah. so glad he did not attempt to um, translate um, and like you mentioned like some of the stuff that people are saying even in phone calls in the background is just some of the funniest dialogue you'll hear all year like everything out of Rafi Cassidy's mouth is just absolutely hilarious to me and the tone of it is really interesting because of the way that it's written I think um, and I think where the movie maybe has some hiccups are kind of things outside the screenplay where it's like the, the voice of the author is sort of like bleeding into it a little too much almost like at the end but that's just sort of like inherent with a novel that's got this crazy ambitious large scope um and to me like the characters too what they signify in relationship to the themes i think are really effective um bones and all i thought does a pretty good job of again making another sort of ya thing feel like it's serious and not um 
silly and making concept that's in that it's very it's pretty wild honestly just like cannibal like these teen cannibal romance thing but imbuing it with a real sense of emotion and making it feel like these characters have gone through things together um making their experiences change them and change their behavior especially because they're going almost entering to a world for the first time so every little thing they encounter is going to influence the way that they see the world and they interact with their their sort of new world um, around them and i think that stuff is is um, is really well done but yeah after yang is my win we talked a lot about it earlier obviously i sort of stayed quiet just because i knew i was going to talk about it here um and the core ideas of it are just so strong i think and the way that it translates those ideas about a person's life holding a piece of your life really like their memories of you or as much of the history of your existence as anything else and when you lose that person like you do lose a piece of yourself almost and i think how it translates and communicates that is pretty incredible um you guys went pretty extensively about um the scene with the trees and the whole metaphors that they go into with that um but then also I think the dynamics of the families too, where you have the Clifton Collins Jr. character, where you can tell there's this weird tension and um, it's not simplistic, I think. And then it, it deepens itself as it goes along. It does not become overly simplified, but it still communicates everything pretty concisely. And I think that's um, really great. And I love the way that it ends the story too, like the note that it ends on. Um, and yeah, I just think it's Togonata, one of my favorite filmmakers. Um, and I think he, made another in, in pretty incredible feature. And I think a lot of that is how he wrote it. Absolutely. Scott? Yeah. So I had Ryan Johnson for Glass Onion on Knives Out Mystery as well. I, Scott, you said themes, like not necessarily for the themes, but for like the narrative construction uh, almost of the story. I want to say like, I think for the themes as well. One of the things I did say, uh, I think after seeing this movie and why I don't quite think it's as... Uh, quite as good as Knives Out, uh, the original, it is because it's so specific. It's like so much more specific themes and humor than the first film. That's why I don't think it's necessarily going to age as well. Like, am I going to be getting the same experience or enjoying it the same when I share it with someone who like didn't live in exactly this moment and was like very online? Um, at, at this time, like they're probably not going to be able to access the humor in that as much as they would something like Knives Out. That said, for what it is doing with the humor, with the themes that it's exploring, look, it's not the most original film in terms of exploring this idea of like rich people be be fake and like trying to really grab on to the little semblance of wealth that they have in this friend who who found success through maybe underhanded means is that super original no but i feel like we, we should all just like stand back and acknowledge that like if a movie is really funny and and uh, addressing that like maybe it deserves awards because like not enough movies are funny uh, enough these days listen I mean, between this and triangle status one could think that you have a certain opinion about wealthy people in today's <laughs> modern climate yeah it's wonder. it's yeah no no comment further on, on that um on, on this podcast that off air we can talk about it more um <laughs> no i i think that it's it isn't i mean to your point it is an interesting pairing with triangle of sadness completely different things on its mind power dynamics and whatnot this film is much more interested in i kind of feel like much more interested in, in condemning not just ed norton's miles braun but like also everyone else in his circle one of the like strangest takes or whatever i saw on twitter about this film was that like can't believe like 
like the opinion on on like the um the shitheads or like what the influencers or whatever like changes at the end like all of a sudden like it's just okay that they change their mind i'm like i don't quite think that was the read of the movie um that was intended but okay uh it, it reads like that just sort of baffle me sometimes but anyway very everything what scott said and i also think the themes and the humor of it are something to highlight as well and why i thought it was such a success ryan johnson just like a, a I, I don't want to say unique, but I think a really superior mind in taking traditional genres, blending a bunch of different things together and creating something new out of it. I think it would have been really easy to re, you know, recycle a lot of stuff that he did in Knives Out and make still what it would have been a still very successful film. But he managed to sort of just, I think, throw most of the formula out, keep the same idea of how maybe he approached Knives Out in terms of taking the mystery genre and doing something a little funky with it that's been done and other types of movies, but sort of playing on your expectations and, and does that pretty successfully as well with Glass Onion. Um, Top Gun Maverick, what else is there to say that hasn't already been said on the podcast about it? Um, 100% agree with everything that Scott and Paul already said. Then my two sort of, I think, original ones here, original being no one else had them, 3,000 Years of Longing, so George Millen, Augusta Gore. I mean, I don't talk about it enough on this podcast that mad max fury road might be one of might be my favorite movie of all time if not is my favorite movie of all time and so i was naturally very excited about whatever george miller was going to do as a follow-up and the fact that i got something so visually on the same level but so different thematically i just found so rewarding i do understand some some of the complaints about the film but i i feel like i just sort of like saw through the matrix on this one that most people couldn't quite get not that i'm like smarter or better about accessing the film but just something about it just it did click for me and some people it didn't i think especially some people pointing out the third act of the film doesn't necessarily hold together but for me i just think it it, it worked i don't know i just felt like i didn't i didn't see the same things in my own experience even though i kind of understand where where they're coming from and the the structure of the storytelling this fantastical tale from hundreds and thousands of years ago weaving it into the present timeline it's just such like a George Milo weirdo experiment um, that he only could make probably after making something like Mad Max Fury Road and, and getting his blank check. But I'm glad it was made. I uh, really enjoyed it. And, you know, if there's a movie that if you're feeling like you can just take a flyer on something weird and interesting one night, I think that you couldn't go wrong with 3,000 Years of Longing, personally. And then Matt Reeves and Peter Craig for the Batman. I, I noted earlier when I was talking about... Um, Colin Farrell that it feels like one of the great successes of the film was uh you know just what it, the fact that it was able to differentiate itself from both Nolan's Batman films the Batman films from you know the 80s and 90s or 90s there was one of them in the 80s right um 89 yeah the 89, cool yeah. sick movie release dates yeah and then most recently of course like Zack Snyder's Batman I think maybe easier to most maybe most important to to distance yourself from that just because it is a, a new take on the batman so close temporally but also the fact that you were able to do something contemplative but not nolan with it as well and, and the comparisons to fincher that i was talking about people making before the film i think they weren't totally far off i think it's that it's that flavor if not necessarily execution that he's able to bring and i 100 percent think that he nails the the central mystery and the relationships as batman sort of develops into you know, being the hero Gotham needs um, over the course of the film. Obviously, it's it's a bit of a Batman coming of age in that he's still very young in his time. And there's some very personal topics to the character of Batman and Bruce Wayne explored in the film. And I think the blending of that with the noirish detective stuff and 
then the relationships between all the different characters. I think Matt Reeves and Peter Craig did a really wonderful job. And After Yang is my winner. The opposite reason of Paul saying that I'll hold off to talk about After Yang because I'll talk about later <laughs> was I'm going to talk about this now because it's my winner. <laughs> Just filibuster. Um, yeah. All right. Well, there you go. And uh, we have we still have the big four categories to go, go the final four categories. But before we get there, we are going to take a short break. So stay tuned. We will be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott, and the Some Like It, Scott Awards. All right, we're into the final four categories now, the big four. We're going to start with Best Actress, and I believe we're back over to Paul to get us started with your nominees. All right, my nominees for Best Actress, I have Rebecca Hall in Resurrection. I have Park Ji Min in Return to Seoul. I have Zoe Kravitz in Kimmy. I have Margaret Qualley in Stars at Noon, and Tilda Swinton in The Eternal Daughter. Some of those were so close for me. Uh, Scott. Yeah, sorry. Still still recovering from, from some of those. Uh, I had Kate Blanchett in Tar. I had Frankie Corio in After Sun. I had Danielle Deadweiler in Till. I had Kiki Palmer in Nope. And I had Olivia Coleman in Empire of Light. Zinger. <laughs> there it is. Um, all right. I had Mia Goth in Pearl. I had Kate Blanchett in Tar. Uh, Michelle Yeoh and everything everywhere all at once, Tang Wei and Decision to Leave, and Aubrey Plaza in Emily the Criminal. Um, so, where do we where do we begin? I, I don't think Paul shared any with us, right? I can't I, I can't not. believe not having Kate Blanchett on there. But anyway, um, he's not a normie. It's fine. Yeah, I guess we are being normies. But yeah, I mean, honestly, for me, like. Maybe I haven't seen it, you know? Check my Letterbox. It's not on there yet. So maybe I haven't seen it. Yeah, well, you'll log it next year, but I know you've seen it. Um, <laughs> this is, honestly, at this category, again, it's it feels like this category has been stacked a lot in recent years. Like, you know, this has been like the best of the acting categories. You could make a case for it again. But yet, for me, like, it really does come down to the chalk picks. Like, I really do think that Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh. Yeah, the chalk of Mia Goth. Everyone has. No, I'm, I'm saying, no, this is what I'm saying. I'm saying that at the top, there's yeah. Kate Blanchett and there's Michelle Yeoh. And then underneath that, there's everyone else for me. Um, so I guess to talk about those, Scott, did you have Michelle Yeoh as well? I did not. I chose to not talk about I'm the only one that has her. Okay. Uh, I guess we could save Kate Blanchett because I feel like we're going to be. Why don't we just go around the horn and. You guys can talk about everyone, I guess. I do want to say on some of Paul's picks real quick, though, because I, it, you know, again, some of them are really close for me. I'm excited by the Margaret Qualley pick. I really wanted to pick her because I think she's so interesting um, and, like, is just wild on screen. Like, you never know what she's going to do. Um, it feels like she's such a sort of antithetical to other actresses of her generation right now. Like, she's occupying... A difference well, hey, you didn't pick her, but you're still getting the space to talk to her, I guess. I know, yeah. It's like, it's like you might as well you might as well pick her. I appreciate you for giving me that. It but, felt like she was in a different movie. 
than everyone else. Maybe. Maybe. I don't I actually don't think so. I, don't, I think Joe Allen was in a different movie than everyone else. You think everyone no, else was no, in a bad different movie, movie from Mark Quali? That's what you're saying. So you just flipped no, 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 I said Joe just just Joe Allen. Just Joe. Low-key Benny Safdie brought the heat in this movie. That's all I'm gonna say. He, you could have nominated was, him for best supporting actor. I could have. That's I your choice. Have. Um I think we've gotten off track. Paul, why don't you talk about some of your picks? Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, to me, Rebecca Hall is no shade, the better version of the Mia Goth performance. It's like, what if the monologue, but good. No, um, I love Rebecca Hall asleep. in general. Just a reminder, I, you fell asleep. <laughs> that speaks to the performance. Uh, I think Rebecca Hall is a performance is a performer that I really love, but this movie gives her an even more stressful situation that I didn't think was potentially possible after her last few very stressful situations in <laughs> film. Um, but to me, she plays the sort of outrageousness of her circumstances really grounded and really straight um i mean the monologue is obviously a showstopper but beyond that i love her deteriorating relationship with the aforementioned grace kaufman um who plays her daughter in the movie and um the way that she talks about tim roth before he shows up to me does so much character work for him that he, when he's there it's like it's almost easy for him because she's done all the setup but her again as the movie goes on just her losing her mind more and more and more her paranoia how that manifests to me is just like kind of exhausting and debilitating in a way that i found pretty impressive honestly um zoe kravitz is this nomination like partly for just the hand sanitizer thing she does where she just shakes her hands out all the time that i'm obsessed with maybe um, <laughs> so good but to me Again, she communicates that anxiety, but in a way that's like a little shielded, a little protected. She's not totally letting herself lose her mind. She's kind of dialing it and dialing it and dialing it. And you can see how she performs differently, too, when she's just in her place versus when she's outside. Like, she's clearly, like, very conscious of her physical space, um, people around her. And it always feels like there's someone out to get her, when both when there is and when there isn't. Um, and I love the way that she interacts with people differently like um people that she has different types of relationships with i think those are clearly defined by the way that she talks to them how she is again is with them in physical space how close or far away she is her body language that stuff um i think is just really impressive uh margaret quality like you sort of mentioned she has this insane just weird energy of you literally do not know what she's gonna do or say from one second to another and i could not look away for a single moment um to me she embodies the sort of movies like spirit of like these total idiots that think they're unearthing like this great conspiracy but like they're actually morons um but the way that they interact with each other is fascinating to me like her and joe alwyn and like specifically the way that she talks to him is so bizarre and it's like you're wondering like is this is there a piece that i don't have to this um and that and that her sort of enigmatic quality i find to be like arrest utterly arresting um tilda swinton is someone i always love and um i love her performance in the other joanna joanna hogg movies but here obviously she's playing like a dual role and um not just the way that she plays them differently but the way that she plays them off each other when it's just herself i think it's kind of wild to think about uh and she communicates like a type of sadness that is very specific to her as a performer, I think, that I don't think I've ever seen other people be able to communicate as well. But just this, like, 
oh, okay, um, kind of spirit to her character that she's trying so hard to make things nice for her mother and she can't quite get things exactly right in the way that it kind of stresses her out, but doesn't quite take her over the edge. Like she's just sort of at an irksome level for a lot of it. Um, and then when it becomes this emotional journey, when she reaches the point where she's starting to express herself, that stuff is effective too. Like she plays all those different levels, I think with equal deafness. Um, uh, and I just think that's, that's incredible. And, but, but my win is Park Ji Min. Uh, she is this kind of like whirling dervish, like walks into a room and the entire room sort of gravitates her. The opening scene is like already sets her up, um, her character with her kind of like bull in a china shop energy of her not abiding to the normal rules of Korea because she's not raised in Korea. And then you see her confront her, these people from her past and it becomes stripping back those layers of, of this sort of hardness that she's put on herself. And she's sort of testing out how much vulnerability she's allowed to display, how much she wants to display. And then as the time passes in the movie, you see how the exposure to the Korean culture and to this part of her past changes the way that she lets herself be with other people, like how she's more closed off with certain people than others and how she's, again, I want to be sort of vague with this because I know you both haven't seen it. Um, but it's like an ultimate, and she's never acted in a movie before. And it was insane. Like she, there, I was at a Q and a um, with her and just the way that she described the way they totally rewrote the, wrote the entire character because she saw a lot of false notes in the behavior of the character in the initial script and how she felt like, because her life kind of mirrors this girl who was like born in Korea, but adopted and grew up in France, like that her behaviors would be a certain type of way. And I think that the way they modulate that is like just incredible. And she is just like, her energy is, is it's not quite the same kind of character, but it's almost like the Renata Reinsva thing where she just like, kind of like everyone she comes in contact with like, will never forget this person. And it's because of her command of, of, the emotional and social space, I think that is like unbelievable. She she is kind of my winner in a walk. I can't wait to see it. I really can't. Uh, Scott. All right, I'll start with Olivia Coleman. Empire of Light. Uh, almost. Al, al, well, <laughs> so I also thought about putting Olivia. Like this was almost my first category, as well. Like thinking about a good performance in a movie that was bad. Um, I think Olivia yeah. Coleman qualifies here but i knew that i was talking about her later because i did nominate her in this category so i didn't choose that i think the performance is good guys like the movie is not good i think we can all come we can all come around the stream yard and hold hands i'll never know the I'll movie never is know. bad um, i think michael ward is better honestly but yeah oh i disagree okay interesting um michael ward's good though michael ward is good but i don't know yeah anyway from, uh, it's just like the, the movie premiere scene where she just, ugh, it's just, it's like so beneath her, in my opinion. Yeah, all right. Anyway, go on. <laughs> Roles where someone struggles with mental health is beneath her. Got it. Understood. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it took us this long to get to the slinging mud. I, I jest. I jest. I think that, that she's asked to do a lot in the movie even in spite of her very strong performance, I think the movie still gets away. It just seems like a colossal miscalculation of a film overall, but I think the performance is, like, it's still- it Sounds so unlike Sam Mendes, you know? Sounds so- Stand unlike. down, all right, buddy, stand down. <laughs> all right, log off. Um, and I do think that overall, 
she still brings a caliber of performance that you know i just wish the rest of the movie held up to i don't think we don't need to talk about an empire of light or olivia coleman anymore now all right cool danielle deadweiler genuinely shocked she didn't get nominated for the i'll be honest like I'm, i am shocked that she didn't get nominated for the oscar i just felt like you know the, the the film is is good the film is good her performance is next level her her performance is above the film's quality and i think she's sort of like the actress that I just felt like we talked a lot about her on the podcast last year just because we were big fans of The Harder They Fall. Or maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just like projecting all of my strong emotions about The Harder They Fall onto everyone else um, or around me. But I really loved that movie. I loved just about every performance in that movie, including Danielle Deadweiler. And then to see her do something that is more Oscar Beatty and, and the awards conversation... Um, but still bring a quality to the performance that just feels like is just sort of like gut wrenching. I think it's really easy to like overact those types of, of roles. And I think we've seen a lot happen um, in those types of performances in those movies. And I think that she was able to measure it pretty perfectly. So I was really impressed with what she did. Kiki Palmer. Uh, nope. So good. I, when I rewatched this movie, the most recent time, I think that was the time where that like the performance just like really fully clicked with me into the next gear, taking her above Kaluuya in the movie for me, who I think is, I mean, Daniel Kaluuya just feels like nearly unimpeachable as an actor at this point. I think he's wonderful and nope. Um, but Kiki Palmer, I think whatever it was, I think she just sort of rises up and stands above it. Um, I was looking up her Wikipedia page afterwards and saw her age and nearly passed out when I saw her age. I was like, what? Uh, did Wait, in which direction that. did you think? I didn't realize how young she was. Younger. I didn't realize how young. Oh, I mean, she's a Disney uh, star when we were kids. Which so. is a not, not a true, not a true favorite. Jackson guy. Not a true Jackson guy. I am what was not, the Jump Rope movie that she kid. did with yeah, my, my Jump in. Didn't, yes. didn't subscribe to the Disney Channel, so I never watched any of those Disney Channel shows. Um, but so I, I'm not, I'm not a Kiki Palmer, um, OG, I guess. But I, I'm totally won over by her. And this performance, I think she's wonderful. Her, uh, like her complementary nature to OJ as a character, I think that like dynamic just works perfectly. And I just think she just totally owns it. Like she just totally owns the whole movie. Um, everything I feel like as a viewer in these like really high octane scenes, I think like the energy she brings to those scenes, like I kind of think at the end when she's like, you know, whooping and cheering that she gets the Oprah shot um, on the wishing well camera. It's just like, that's just like me in the movie. Like, I just feel like I, you really connect with her as a character. Um, as good as Kalia is, like that character is, I think the one you can really latch onto as a viewer. And it's sort of like the audience POV in a lot of ways. And I just, I really loved her in the film. Frankie Corio, I think we can, t we can talk about her. Um, as a lead actress in the Say movie her name, time. Scott. Say her <laughs> name. <laughs> um, gosh, I feel like I've talked a lot about After Sun already, um, but have not yet talked about Frankie Corio or Paul Meskel, who are both just incredible. I think that as strong as the writing is, and I was talking about how that is just such a critical part to the experience of After Sun for me, it's also true that I, I don't think the movie is what it is without the performances of these two. Talked about just like an earnest youthful performance and then just the i just feel like she really wins in the relationship with her father um and the fact that she's able to just nail that in the performance both in being a child but also understand like 
trying to access and understand what what her dad's thought processes and motivations are and you know when she loses the goggles for example like understanding that she like how serious like her dad is going to react that even though in the grant like it's a pair of goggles you know it's not a ton of money but it matters and i think that that her ability to switch gears in that performance is just so perfect um and that's just one example that i think she has to do it a lot in this film you know whether it's the karaoke scene whether it's later in the dance number um throughout the whole movie she's doing it within scenes and across scenes and i think that that level of range and the and the performance of su at such a young age feels something that's like very special and then yeah look my winner is kate blanchett i don't know if i have more to add outside of everything that i've already said for hours on the podcast across multiple episodes but uh you you can't start without me um i, I feel like that start without me yeah i i think that is just um scott was talking about the opening scene you know the adam gopnik interview and i remember seeing this thing i was seeing on the very back row um of the balcony in the new york film festival watching this movie and i'm just like sucked in from the moment she walks out on that stage and starts getting interviewed it's just absolutely magnetic performance the chalk wins probably this year what about mozart you into him or whoever it is she says um yeah, Bach? yeah yeah so my list uh tangway decision to leave yeah i mean this movie is partially about would you risk it all for Tangway? And yes, yes, I would. Um, and yeah, so would the character, and you understand, not just because she's Tangway, but just, you know, the way that she um, is so uh, guarded, but also, you know, seductive, manipulative, all of the things in her performance. Um, she uh, has that perfect layer of intrigue about her where even though you get the sense that, you know, they're, is she she doesn't have um your best intentions at heart necessarily um you can't help but um fall under her spell um and the way she just keeps the right amount underneath the surface so that we're still constantly second guessing this character's motives throughout uh, the movie i think it's so crucial to everything that this movie is trying to do had to pick her um mia goth yeah i mean fearless uh in pearl um she uh she puts it all up there on the screen um i love watching the like gradual descent into madness of this character of um you know someone who just wants to you know express herself through art really she wants to be a dancer um she is living in a sheltered lifestyle um and we see it like you know festering underneath the surface again um her frustration with her whole situation and then um you know it becomes the sort of coming of age story and her sexual awakening and everything that that um opens up for her both you know in a good way and mostly in a bad way right like um the audition scene that she has is pretty uh pretty memorable pretty incredible um we see how quickly it can turn from you know giving her all at her performance, you know, her dancing performance to giving her all like desperately, like in desperation, like the way that she's be begging um, those judges to accept her. Um, and then, yeah, the monologue, I, I, look, I'm, I, 
absolutely no zero shade whatsoever to Rebecca Hall, who's also one of my favorite actresses, but um, this one just slightly took the, the cake for me. Um, I think, you know, hard to look away from her. And the final shot, even though it's now been memed to death, um, pretty pretty amazing that they that was just that was the first take that was the only take they did of the final shot um and yeah her her face is yeah that, that'll keep you up at night but um aubrey plaza and emily the criminal um great um you know i kind of talked about some of it with thea rossi's performance but um you know she has like the right level of um like tenacity there's you know she she is not afraid to stand up for herself this character and you could see how it gets her into trouble even when it shouldn't right like you know the the scene with gina gershon where you know she's being interviewed and finds out that this is an unpaid internship basically and like that's the moment where all of her frustrations you know just sort of come out and she um you know goes off on gina gershon but um it's it's a great sort of payoff from earlier in the movie when you know she's getting grilled about her criminal record and whatnot and you can see that she wants to like pop off but like she doesn't she she holds it in um but now like she's banking everything on this internship and um or on this being a job and when it turns out to not be a job you know that's the point where she's like let's do it let's steal all your brother's money you know let's let's just get out of here um so just one of my favorite characters of the year and she continues to show off her versatility. Um, I want to see her doing more dramatic roles because obviously um, she's probably, she was primarily known for comedy until a few years ago, but um, such a real character, honestly, um, such a, you know, real person that, you know, mirrors the, experience, mirrors the experiences of many people in our sort of generation um in terms of what she's going through maybe you know again maybe not to that extent but again you understand why it gets to that point because of the situation that she's been put in but michelle yo this performance just utilizes everything that's great about michelle yo um I, I think that's you know it, it does feel like the culmination of her career really um because it's using you know the action heroine stuff that she you know um kind of started her career with um it you know an international film you know she did like one of the police story movies with jackie chan and then Super you know a, a bunch of other martial arts movies yeah crouching tiger hidden dragon you, you know um, but also you know in recent years kind of in some of the more character actressy roles that she's been in has shown off like her emotional um you know depth and it's that's all you know required from this performance i think um, it's not a movie that I'm in love with, um, certainly not to the extent of other people, but, um, you know, when I saw that performance, I was like, that's going to be pretty hard to beat for the year. And yet it was beaten by Kate Blanchett, um, because from the opening frame of Tar, um, yeah, you talk about commanding. It's one of the most commanding performances I've seen in a long time, uh, from anyone, um, I, I don't I don't know what else to say. It almost sort of defies words for me. Like I think um, it the, the performance speaks for itself. Like just just watch Tar and you will understand. Um, it's it's I think an all timer performance and one that people are going to be talking about for for kind of decades to come. Honestly, when they talk about 
Kate Blanchett, who's already such a decorated and accomplished actress, and um, I will have no issues with her winning a third Oscar for this. Since you didn't get to talk about Frankie Coria earlier, and Scott has now come, do you want to <laughs> mention a little bit, like your thoughts on the whole thing? Sure. I mean, I you know I echo most of what Scott said. I, I think you know she perfectly captures that kid thing of like she understands maybe more than you expect about the situation that um, her father is undergoing, but there's still that level of naivety there that she can't fully grasp onto it, which again is so. Um, it's like the whole point of the movie. Crucial, crucial for what the movie's yeah. trying to do, exactly. 100%. Um, and, you know, it, so there, there is, again, for someone who's so young, who's never acted before, like there's such a level of calculation that has to go into this performance. Like, I'm That's kind interesting because the way that I process the movie is that she does not really understand what's going on with him. Like, that's not how I saw the movie at all, really. Like, as well, a kid. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't think she fully, she fully understands it, but she can sense, like, again, like the. She knows that the, certain things upset him. Yeah. I mean, she, it's clear that. Sure. I mean, it's clear from multiple scenes, but does she know what that upset she, mean, like means? No, definitely not. She, she understands, like, the simple emotions that are being expressed, but, um, you know, not yeah. necessarily the reasons underscoring them. But, um, again, the performance, I think, there's so many choices that she has to make. Like, it has to be a very demanding role in a way for a. Uh, you know, un, un, you know, an actor with no experience, a, a child actor, whatever. But um, yeah, P pretty, pretty amazing performance, honestly. All right, best actor. We are moving right along. Scott. Tom Cruise, Top Gun Maverick, Colin Farrell. Just stop there. <laughs> Colin Farrell in After Yang, Song Kang Ho in Broker, Gabriel LaBelle. In the Fablemans, and Paul Mescal and After Sun. Well, Scott, we have four in common, as a matter of fact. Uh, yeah. So I have Colin because, Farrell in, okay. in After Yang, Tom mm -hmm. Cruise in Top Gun Maverick, Gabriel LaBelle in The Fablemans, Paul Mescal in After Sun, and my one outlier is Adam Driver in White Noise. Paul. Uh, I have Christopher Abbott in On the Count of Three. I have Colin Farrell. Uh, I have Daniel Kaluuya. I have Daniel Kaluuya from Nope. I have Jack Loden from Benediction, and then I have Paul Mescal for After Sun. All right. Uh, well, Scott, you and I shared quite a few there. Um, yeah. Can we just talk for a second, Gabriel LaBelle? It's a real shame that he is not getting more yeah. attention for this performance. Um, I do think yep. it's the best performance in The Fablemans. Um, and I'd say, Scott, it's not even close. Ooh, in my I, I interesting time even close, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I just I think he's great. Um, yeah, you you think Michelle I, Williams I and Paul Danner are almost as good as Gabriel? I think maybe. I think Chloe East and David Lynch are. As good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, it's just such come a on. different sort of thing for me. Come like on. you know, they're what they're the mean, come Steelers. On. Sure. Okay. I mean, again, David Lynch, unimpeachable. But um, yeah, we've we've talked about the Tom Cruise stuff kind of throughout the whole um, you know episode and the fact that he just is, he just exists, and that is. that that is you know, and, and people show up and people turn up, and you're you're wild, honestly. Um, sure. There's no other way to really put it except it's just like his presence is the performance at this point. Like Xenu um, has empowered him, no doubt. 
Yeah. I mean, that you know, there's some question of like, well, what does he do here that is like so different from what he does in the past? And he doesn't have to do anything different. Like, uh, it's been working for him and it's still working for him. I think you're not giving him a credit. He does do different things. I was going to say, I, did, like, I, was gonna sure. say, I think he, he does. does. He does. He does. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how do you even nominate him? Having to navigate the relationships with, you know, with Rooster, with Iceman, right? With, you know, him. With him a him real him. adult woman, not like yes. a, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he pulls it off uh, <laughs> as much as Tom Cruise probably can. Um, yeah, all the relationships work, um, you know. And he doesn't, again, he doesn't overpower. We're talking about this with Glenn Powell, but he doesn't overpower, despite him being this, you know, sort of force of nature. He doesn't overpower anyone else on screen. Like, he is giving and taking with the other you know actors that he's on screen with um so you know perfect uh perfect person for this role um nothing else really to say there um yeah i, I think just, just really quickly on tom cruise because i guess to, to elaborate more on why i think it is different like i don't think you get this emotional depth from him in any mission impossible movie um just as like a close point of reference like you talk about the yeah. relationships working, but I think that, yeah, like his relationship with Rooster specifically in the film, I mean, I don't think that there's anything close. Like his relationship with, you know, Michelle Monaghan in the Mission Impossible franchise, not quite, not quite there, um, I don't think. So, yeah, I think he's absolutely, he, he's doing like the Tom Cruise stuff. Like they even, they even let him go running for a little bit in the film towards, towards the end when he's in the woods. Like they, they let him do all the things that he's known for. Um, but then I love that he's I love that he plays shirtless football, but only for a brief period of time. And, then and he he's wearing like there, capris you know? or like jeans rolled up. He's not he's even wearing, wearing jeans. Isn't he? Yeah. yeah, like the yeah. jeans rolled up like a little bit where it's like halfway up his calf. Really strange decision. I don't know what was. <laughs> I don't know. Well, what weren't they wearing? Wasn't he wearing jeans or something when he plays volleyball in the first one? Or, or at least somebody was wearing jeans, I think. Oh, was he? They're all wearing jeans. They're all wearing jeans. Yeah, that's what I thought. Keep it PG, kids. Uh, we all had Colin Farrell, I believe, for After Yang. I mean, you know, we you had multiple performances that you could choose from here for Colin Farrell. So I guess, you know, Paul, do you want to talk about why this was the one that, you know, you went with? Sure. I think it's, uh, I mean, I just think it's a more nuanced performance than the Banshees one. The Banshees one, he's doing a thing that I think is interesting, but it's sort of a pretty simplistic thing. But um, he's kind of doing After a bit Yang, the whole movie. I just feel like he's kind of doing a big yeah. thing the whole movie. And again, like, as one of the, you know, biggest fans of Colin Farrell, you'll find, like, I love that part of him. But I think to me, like, I love where um, where his character goes. I think in where it begins, I think, in After Yang. Like, he's not really someone who, I don't, it seems like he's not really that connected to Yang, honestly. Like, they sort of just get Yang to sort of parent for them sometimes, almost. And it's him engaging with his daughter in a way that he hasn't really before. And his, just his realizations when he finally accesses those memories and what how that changes his relationship to his own family and his idea of what it means to be a father to his daughter what it means to be a father to yang also that stuff i just think is, is really special his like his sad energy i think is is channeled so well in the movie but also just because he provides like an effortless warmth that is just unbelievable and also the incredible Werner herzog impression that he does in the scene where i'm talking about the tea is just like hilarious awesome yeah, no, I, I'm not used to seeing him play someone so like warm. I guess is I, I, to be quite honest with you, I'm not. I have not always been the biggest fan of him, but I, yeah, there's he he's perfectly matching the tone of you know Koganada, 
um, in this movie. Like he was perfectly cast. Um, and yeah, he's just, he, he has such a sort of the warm, soft-spoken, inviting presence that he has, um, as this, you know, mild mannered tea salesman or whatever he's, he's playing against type a little bit. And I always appreciate that. Um, and yeah, I think he finds, um, a lot of layers and, you know, obviously he's, Coconut is giving him a lot, but, um, he makes the most of it. Um, and he's kind of in that mode and like the lobster and. Also in the new world, he's kind of in that same kind of register. Yeah, too much. Uh, well, I have seen the lobster, but I haven't seen the new world. Definitely on the list, but um, he seems closer yeah. to like his banshee's character in the lobster than I'd say after Yang. But it's like somewhere in the it's almost like a the middle the midpoint of those two, I think. But yeah, anyway, okay. I, I was just saying like he has done a kind of thing like that before. It's not totally new necessarily, but I like this version of it a lot. He also has like a. I don't know how to explain it, but he's like, it just seems like he's always tired in this movie. Like you can, you get the sense that like the, you know, the world is kind of too much for him in a lot of ways. Um, and this situation is not necessarily making that any better, but also it's opening up, you know, new understanding for him of life in a lot of ways. So um, you definitely wonder who this guy is going to be after the movie ends. Um, this song right, says, I want to be. I, I'm just trying, I'm just looking at Colin Farrell's filmography this year. Totally did not realize that he and Viggo Mortensen were the thirteen lead, lives. lives. Yeah. I'm just like, I thought you were going to make a joke about that earlier. When you're like, you could have picked any performance of Colin Farrell. Yeah. I forgot. I forgot that he was in. I forgot that he was in that movie. He was indeed. Paul Thomas uh, Anderson's favorite favorite film of 2022. All right, sure. Scott. Do you want to hit the rest of yours and the winner? Sure. Um, yeah. So I talked about Colin Farrell, um, Tom Cruise. I guess I didn't talk about Colin Farrell, but I, I don't know if I have much more to say on top of what Paul said. I just think, yeah, that that tenderness. Like, he, he's just, like, totally on the same wave, like, this Coconata, like, 100%. Um, and the fact that that filmmaking resonates so deeply with me, it's no surprise that that performance then also resonated so deeply with me. Um, Tom Cruise, we talked about. Gabriel LaBelle, like, I, I stand by it, guys. I, th I think that he's the best performance in the movie, and I don't think it's that close. I just don't. I, I understand, the like, the cameos. I, I will give you the cameos. Chloe East thing. It's out of pocket. I don't know. Stand out. Stand out. What are you? Um, what are you talking about? She's so good no, at the she's movie. Great. Oh, she's great. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, Craziness. <laughs> and her husband is like a letterbox reply guy. Do you guys? Do you guys know that? He like commented on my review. Like that's my wife. That you like in that's the movie. She old, is she weird, old enough but, to be married? What? She's like in her early twenties. Yeah. All right, interesting. Well, shout out to him, I guess. Good. Shout out Good. to yeah, big Did, wife. Is guy. that how they met in her replies on Letterbox? Is that, is that I don't know. She has an account too, which is kind of wild. But anyway, cool. yeah, uh, I had a really hard time picking Chloe East seriously in the film, which you know maybe is the point. But this is not about Chloe East. This is about Gabriel Labelle, who I think is wonderful in the film. I think he is. I, I felt like going into the film, I was told that I'm supposed to anchor on like the parents as like the guidepost for for the film. And I just, that just wasn't my experience watching the movie. I really felt like you needed to anchor on this performance. And once you're introduced to, you know, this version of Sammy, when, you know, he's in, he's a little bit older past the first few scenes. I just think that that this performance just gets everything right. Maybe it's because I'm I'm younger and not of that, like, you know, the parent, like the parental age and, and haven't even really thought about having kids and stuff like that, but didn't connect with, with the parents in that way and really felt like I did connect with Sammy. And I thought a huge part of that was just how relatable Gabriel LaBelle made the character feel. 
and I just think that was a, a wonderful performance. And and the angst and the difficulty he he has to wrestle with over the course of the film constantly with his relationship with his parents, I just thought was just emotionally perfectly noted. Um, I think it's really easy to maybe spoil the performance leaning too hard one direction or the other and in some key moments and, and he manages to not do that, which I think takes a lot of um, a lot of maturity for someone who has very little acting experience under his belt before this film, if, if any at all. I don't actually not familiar with this filmography. Um, so yeah, just really strong performance. Uh, and then Song Kang Ho for Broker. I'm glad that it seems we've talked about every single performer in Broker. Um, not because I, I think that he's so superior to everyone else, of course, but because I think they're all just so good. And the fact we that we talk about the baby, yeah, that's yeah. true. I mean, just wait for her favorite scenes or moment, just the baby. Um, yeah, best, best director, the baby. That I want to sense. see the baby. That joke didn't work. Um, all right, moving, moving on to Song Kang Ho. I think, yeah, I, I definitely hear what you guys are saying about um, the other central performances of the film being critical, but I think one of the things that pushes the film forward early on when you're still getting a, like to know some of those central characters a little bit and there's a lot of mystery i think behind is song king ho not that he doesn't also have his question marks and his mysteries about him but i think there's a there's a particular characterization and warmth about him that i think really catalyzes my level of engagement or like what my level of engagement with the film was and i was really able to lock in on that and do i think that maybe the scenes that you highlight, like the Ferris wheel scene, is maybe like the crescendo of the film and where it peaks. I do agree, but I, I just think I really appreciated what Song Kang Ho was doing as this parental figure, not just to these babies, you know, for a short period of time that he's brokering their adoptions, but also for, um, you know, these these characters, these people in his orbit as well. I think he's he doesn't have it all together, but these people really do look up to him in that way. Um, their their relationships are complicated, and it's more than just one thing. But I think a big part of it is that I really appreciated how different this role was to you know the admittedly you know the one or two other roles that, of the many that he's done that I've actually seen you know, between Parasite and Memories of Murder, um, and it just made me really appreciate what he's what, like the the range he's capable of, and I don't know I, I feel like I always I get this way a lot this time of year where. I lock in a couple actors and I'm like, man, I should really just go watch more of their movies. And I'm 100% feeling that way um, about him. But my winner is Paul Meskel for After Sun. Maybe not totally surprising, um, given how much I've just been abusive about this film so far. But uh, of the performances, as good as Frankie Corio is, I think Paul Meskel is yeah, even, even better. N nearly did a flip out of bed when I saw he got nominated um, for the Academy Award this year. Um, that was really, really awesome to see. And I just think he's he's got the stuff. Like I think I just think he really does. Yeah, normal people, of course, is is where I gravitate to immediately as you know the first time I saw him, you know, the first time he was in anything major. But I think he's been able to deliver in smaller roles in something like The Lost Daughter last year. And then, you know, dad on vacation in the Mediterranean. Um energy carrying from the lost daughter although he's not a dad in that film of course um to after son where he plays this really tortured and embattled father going through for what a long period of time is unclear um in the film and you know i almost felt like when i started to talk about it right there i almost spoiled too much too much about about the film so i gotta cut myself off talking too deeply about the performance but i think 
one of the things I think Paul was saying earlier about so much of the so much of this film is not just told through dialogue but told through action. He is like the he is the prime example that so many like almost completely quiet scenes with him in some sort of meditative state or experiencing and showing some sort of emotion and he does it perfectly. Uh, he really does. I think he's able to completely connect with what Charlotte Wells is written on the page and is directing him with and, um, you know, no notes. Yeah. So my other sort of outlier, also a great, uh, dad character, I guess, Adam driver and white noise, um, a, gr a great dad character, not how I would have yeah. phrased it. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm segue in here. I'm segue a better, here. even better husband, some would say, let me cook. Let me cook. Sure. Um, I'm, <laughs> Yeah, he has like a, uh, you know, he is a, he's he's charismatic. He's like a sort of doofus dad at certain times in the movie. But also there's like a little slight egotism to like his character and performance that I think is really sort of key to what's going on. The fact, the scene where he and he has the big conversation with Babette about, um, you know, what has actually been going on with her. And the fact that she is, you know, going through the same existential dread as he is, basically. And um, he's like, no, this is not Babette. Like, this is not what Babette is supposed to be like or whatever. Like, he's his whole worldview is getting shaken, right? Because um, there's there's just like a slight, you know, a bit of toxicity in the way that he, like, looks at his wife as, you know, this person who is just always supposed to be happy and provide for the family and just be only in one sort of mode. Um and so I think he does a good job of like masking that through a lot of the movie until it's, you know, it becomes obviously um, necessary for him to reveal that. Um, but I mean, even the, you know, he is masking it, but also again, there are hints of it because of his, his work. I mean, his work as professor of Hitler studies and the dueling lecture scene. The scenes where he's learning, where he's learning German from the neighbor dude yes. are hilarious. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the the dueling lecture scene is like amazing the way that he, um, you know, captures the screen and in, in, uh, in that scene and talking about, you know, these Nazi rallies and why people came to see Hitler and everything. Um, you, you understand, like, even though, like, again, he kind of acts a little goofy and stuff outside of this setting, like for those few minutes you like fully understand why he is seen as like this great, you know, scholar and great figure um, within his particular field. Um, he, he, you know, he, he unlocks that magnetism when he's in front of the crowd um, and contrasted later when he's, you know, surrounded by a crowd of people, but, you know, he's in a situation where he has no idea what to do really. And he's, you know, he doesn't have the control that he thinks he has and, in uh in other situations um so he's great but yeah i'm not overcomplicating things here paul mescal is also the winner for me uh for his performance in after sun um, for me it's all about that scene i've talked about it before but the scene where she is describing like do you ever feel tired or whatever like she's describing like that very specific feeling of tired or whatever that she feels and you know, the scene is shot where she's on one side of the wall, like on the bed, and then he's in the bathroom. Um, and he's messing with his 
you know, risk. He's cutting his cast up. That he's cutting yeah. his cast off. I think he is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we see him just like looking in the mirror, and it's the ultimate like his voice is you know saying one thing, his face is saying another. Like here is the reality of his situation, but also here is the face that he is presenting, the facade that he is putting on for his daughter of like. You know, she asks him, do you ever feel like that? And he just says something like, you know, well, I, we should let's not talk about that now or whatever. Let's go to dinner. Or like, he, you know, he he is putting on a face because he's a dad and that's what he feels like he has to do. But his actual face, which we see in, you know, the mirror and, you know, combined with the fact that, you know, he's um, in this physically difficult situation as well with his, you know, wrist um it's it's a perfect you know encapsulation of the mystery of the character and you know how we we can see that there's something more there we can't understand exactly what it is but we know you know we can recognize that sadness um but we also see you know what he's having the, the the face that he's having to put on for his daughter and then when you know when he when he dances um, at the end of, you know, the movie, the under pressure scene is, um, you know, the, the way that he comes out of his shell like that, um, it's agonizing almost in like how close you feel like you are to, you know, grasping what is there. But, um, you know, instead you only end up getting further and further away as like, again, quite literally the last thing we see him doing is walking away and, going into the the rave the, the chaotic rave where he is you know he, him as a figure is completely you know sort of muddled basically because we can you know the strobe lights and everything that's going on there um he kind of just enters this purgatory like place where you know you're, you're never going to get to that level that you want to of understanding him um really difficult performance really incredible actor um yeah, this is this is everything I hoped for for him after watching him in Normal People. Like it really is. It's an extraordinary performance. So yeah, for me, um, Christopher Abbott. You know, I, I cut my list into pieces, and he was really my last resort. Um, but sorry, that's heavy. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I. I mean, and that I rewatched um, a lot of this movie because it'd been a while since I'd seen it. But um, to me, like he has that manic that crazy manic energy to me that's i that i really love in a lead performance too where um i mean it's part of his obviously the character but um the scene at the, at the therapist where he she asks him if like there's anything wrong and he's like no and then he goes on to explain why there obviously is something wrong he's like oh but like it's fine what are you writing down and he's like yelling at her um i think he's his energy is unmistakable to me and i love that live wire thing that he brings to almost any movie he's in but specifically in, I think that's a role that really utilizes that stuff well. Um, Daniel Kaluuya, I know we sort of mentioned him a little bit earlier, but there's like a quiet soulfulness to his performance. I think it's interesting in a movie that's so grandiose and so spectacle that what he's doing is very internal and he's not someone who's a very vocal person. You can obviously tell the scene where they're doing the commercial and he's just like quiet and just communicating with the horse and he's just saying like minimal phrases. But then later on, you see his sort of fierce protectiveness and his act again his actions dictate so much of what the way he feels about his family and the way he feels about this ranch the lengths he's willing to go to protect them um he's a, a an actor I, I love in pretty much anything and i think 
Like Nope does make really good use of his skill set in less obvious ways, I think, than something like Widows, which is a great performance, but maybe it's like a louder version of what he can kind of bring to a movie. And I think this is like a quieter register that I thought was really effective. Um, Jack Loden was honestly until about a week ago was my win. Um, but there's a scene near the end, I think, that sort of crystallizes it where he's sitting on a bench and looking at this man in a wheelchair. And there was this voiceover for also from him talking about sort of like his history, this man's history, um, what war do, does to people, to the people in Britain at the time. Um, and you see that over the course of the movie too, where he starts out as this idealistic man. Um, and you get flashes of the sort of the older him where he's become more jaded and that stuff kind of like those two ends coalesce as it reaches the conclusion. I love like structurally what the movie does with that, but also the way he performs it and the way he performs like his internal sadness at so many things that he can't say that he can't do. He's a, he's a gay man living as a conscious conscientious objector and he can't really express either of those things publicly for fear of being outcasted financially and socially and um, in, in every type of way. And I think that he like that his total overwhelming sadness that he like is able to keep just at bay, I think is really amazing. He's an actor that I have not been overly impressed by necessarily in most other things, but I think specifically in Benediction, he's like total showstopper. Um, but yeah, I mean, not to be boring, but Paul Mescal is also my win. It's such a generous performance, I find. Um, he gives so much space to Frankie Corio for her to express herself, and he doesn't take all that stuff and make it about himself. Um, but then you see the moments where he's alone, where like a lifetime of things are communicated. That when he's sitting in the sh in the rug shop by himself, you can yeah. see the turmoil of like, I really want this, I can't really afford it, but like this would mean everything to me. The little glances that he gives to her, I mean, the scene of him crying with his back turned to the camera is like a fucking bowling ball to the gut um but it's not it comes just out of nowhere scene. too like they're, they go goes straight from that moment of them singing to him to the like scene bang. where she's doing karaoke and he's just watching her and it's like he doesn't like you can tell that he feels so uncomfortable by the situation but he can't mm -hmm. really properly express those things because he's not around any adults he knows that he can properly articulate any of these things and so it's like it ha he's trying to be a certain type of father for his daughter and he's making sacrifices for himself, which as we you know, see sort of in the long run may not have been the best thing, um, but he felt like we're the best thing for her at the time, right? Is to put a certain face on for his daughter. Um, and the cracks in the veneer that just come and go and come and go, um, but also like how comfortable they are with each other and how comfortable he is with her. The beginning scene where he just has her like cradled on the bus and like, there is that sense of like, he is so good at making his daughter think that he is a certain type of way. And he's like, it seems like he's practiced it here, like through and through, but he's struggling and struggling and struggling to maintain that face. Um, that's like just incredible. Also, it's just funny that his character's name is Callum coming off of playing Connell and normal people. It's just like very similar names. But anyway, yeah, Paul Mescal. Well, incredible. he's Irish. What can you say? Uh, <laughs> They probably could have made his character be like an older version of, you know, if you wanted to do that. But <laughs> I, uh, sure. yeah, well, they, yeah. they didn't want to do the Joanna Hogg thing with the internal, with the eternal dog. Well, not everyone can pull it off, you know? That's true. I will say one last thing about Ashton. Only on the second watch did I notice the rug. Because yeah. after the first watch, I was like, did he buy the rug? In, did he not buy in the her, apart in her apartment. In her apartment. I was like, whoa, yeah, yeah, you yeah. didn't see that the first time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
I also yeah. think that, like, seeing that makes me very, makes my, like, ultimate reading of the film more concrete about what actually has happened. Or is it, like, otherwise it's maybe a bit ambiguous. But. It contains multitudes, that film. Um, really all right, we're into our t final two categories. Best director is next. I will kick us off. Not really going to be many surprises on my list, but I have uh, Charlotte Wells for After Sun. I have Todd Field for Tar. <gasps> I have Celine Siama for Petite Maman. I have Jordan Peele for Nope. And I have Steven Spielberg for The Fablemans. Paul? I'm, I am surprised. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, I have Terrence Davies for Benediction. I have Todd Field for Tar. I have Jordan Peele for Nope. I have S.S. Rajamuli for Triple R. And I have Charlotte Wells for After Sun. Man, it was so hard to not put RRR on my list. I was so close to putting it in. And I put Jordan Pe I put Jordan Peele in instead. Um, that was my hot swap at the end. But I had Charlotte Wells for After Sun. I had James Cameron for Avatar The Way of Water. I had... <laughs> I had Jordan Peele for Nope, as I as I mentioned. I had Todd Field for Tar, and I had Joseph Kosinski for Top Gun Maverick. Paul, I want to throw it to you because this is the first time I believe which we've heard you mention Tar. So kind of surprising, I guess, to not hear. Did it you just watch this movie point. during the podcast? I know the runtime just finished. I think based on when we're recording. Yeah, I watched it on seven times speed. So when you guys nominated Kate Blanchett, I was like, this sounds like an interesting movie. I haven't really heard much about it. Um, I went I went over to. Um, Amazon and I bought it because um, no other streaming service that was worth my time had it. Um, so I felt like I just. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> anyway, I wanted to hear your thoughts since you haven't. Uh, what is Tar on Seven X Speed? You can start without me. <laughs> <laughs> the timing of the music sounds crazy. The, the Bach pieces are like out of this world, bro. <laughs> it's actually how it's how Mozart intended his work to be listened to. Actually, the ending is actually just Bach played at seven times speed. I don't know if you knew that. The very ending is ba backwards. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's. I mean, I think it's a pretty incredible movie. There are some things in the script I think that I sort of bump on a little bit, and I think like those are not issues I had with how it's directed. Hence, why like it's showing up here and not necessarily there. And honestly, like you know, Kate Blanchett, she's getting plenty of love. I don't think she needed yeah. any more love for me. That's fine. Um, Noe Merlant was like probably like my number six or seven for supporting actress. So like it was really close on the edge there. But I do think it's a tremendously mounted film, both in terms of the set pieces in a like its own kind of sense, but also um, I think it's momentum and like where certain things in the movie occur and the way that it's staged, I think is really impressive. I think the way that it uses the physical spaces that Lydia Tar finds herself in is really interesting. Like the vastness of some of the symphonies versus like the more intimate rooms and where certain conversations take place here and not necessarily there. Um, I think that stuff is all really impressive. Um, so yeah, Todd Field, as I, as I sort of mentioned, do you guys want to, I guess, I mean, I'm sure you'll talk about him. Scott will talk about him at least uh, in a little bit. But a nice any, any other thoughts? It's really safe to say <laughs> Scott would talk about him. Yeah. Well, what do you will? <laughs> yeah, sure I mean, it's a tremendous job. Like we've we've talked a ton about this movie. It was our joint number one movie of the year. So, um, you know, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse at this point. But um, yeah, more movies like this. That's that's all I have to say about his his directing here. More movies like this. Like again, it, 
it was also just the time in which I saw it, but like coming out of this movie, I was like, I'm feasting right now. Like this is what I have been wanting uh, from like movies and you know. For quite you saw a while. this like right after decision to leave or right before decision. You had like this run of right like, before. To leave before, yeah, like yeah. that was a good week. That was definitely a good week. Um, right, right before you had your mystery regal screening that ruined your life. <laughs> <laughs> like and left yeah. like an absolute coward like a coward yeah I yeah i guess i so. i guess i should have picked for brightest light in the darkness will ferrell in the one scene of spirited that i watched before i walked out but yeah. um anyway uh some of our other picks again i, I don't want to like go over territory we've already been over charlotte wells like we've all talked about how great this film is and the restraint in her direction um and again, I think the most fascinating thing about After Sun to me is the way that the movie is like structured and around like the idea of someone remembering this. And I've I've never seen like a movie like stitched together in this way from, um, you know, again, you have the video footage, you have scenes that she is actually remembering, and then you have what are very likely imagined sequences in which like she wasn't even present, right? You know, you're mentioning these scenes with her father by himself um it's possible that those are completely imagined because you know we're meant to be sort of inside her head the whole time and obviously she wouldn't exactly know what was going on um so the way that she's able to stitch that together in a in a through a it, you know story that makes it like watching it it feels like you are experiencing the process of trying to remember something like it you're not just watching someone remembering something you are like experiencing it along with her like i think that's the most remarkable thing about after sun to me and you know i guess a lot of that comes down to the direction spielberg you know what else can you say jordan peele um yeah he just does what he he does best and to see him do something on this scale i think is the most impressive thing about you know, what he does with Note, because obviously, you know, loved what he did with Get Out and Us, but, like, this is a legitimate, you know, again, it's it's Spielbergian, like, it is a legitimate epic, um, and he, like, doesn't miss a beat, honestly, in terms of how comfortable he is in, in handling the spectacle of all of it, again, in a film about spectacle, um, but doesn't sacrifice any of the, you know, social commentary and everything that has made his past films so unique. So um, it really, this film feels like it opens up a whole new world of possibilities for what Jordan Peele can do. Like it's not just, you know, smart, socially conscious horror movies anymore. Like the sky seems to be the limit. Scott. Yeah. Like I mentioned right before, right before listing my nominees, it, it was a real internal struggle, whether to put Jordan Peele or SS Rajamuli in this and I, and I just felt for the exact reason you were saying that I, it would feel disingenuous to not put Jordan Peele in here because not that I I had pigeonholed him into this like you know whether you like the phrase elevated horror or not this notion of like horror with something on his mind um that's not like your traditional tropey stereotypical slasher type um horror movie which I think is really what people are saying like elevated horror is like some slasher movie or whatever that's got something interesting on its mind as opposed to just like, you know, killing people. Um, and, Which and is I think, most horror movies, like most good horror movies, to be fair. What you, sorry, what do, you, what do you mean? 
I just mean most good horror movies like are good because they have something else on their mind. Like, right. I, but I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why totally. It's like it's not some like new idea, 2010s yeah. phenomenon right, that like yeah. a horror movie has something mm-hmm. on its mind. But that that aside, I think the like obviously he's an important figure with the with that with that like sub genre with Get Out and Us. And I was just I walked out of the movie. I saw this. I didn't even I didn't see this in New York when I first saw it. I saw this in Miami because I was there. And I walked out of the movie theater. I was like literally one of the only people in this theater for the film. And I was just like. I just cannot believe what I just watched. Like it was an incredible, like subverted expectations. I did not think it was going to be the scale that it ended up being. And I was just so impressed with Peel's sort of control of like easily his biggest film, not just in terms of budget, of course, which he had $80 million or whatever um, versus like sub 10 million or whatever he had for us and get out. And he's able to just completely crank out something with full spectacle, but for all the other things that we've talked about on the podcast as well um, about this film. So really impressed with him. Todd, Fe- like Todd Field Short, like this movie is just, it, it is really special. I totally hear what Paul's saying too. I, you know, I don't have too many issues with the script personally, but you really can see where Todd Field went to work directing this film. Similar in some ways, I think actually to what makes Charlotte the directing job by Charlotte Wells so powerful is like clearly there's all these elements of the script that I'm talking about unfurling that, but also then having the wherewithal to go to the um, go to the actual execution of that script, framing some of those scenes that that I think Scott mentioned earlier, like the one in the bathroom uh, or a shot where you have her on the bed and him in the bathroom, um, knowing how to execute what had been written on the page in a way that really captures what makes the script so powerful and translate that specifically and get the best out of, out of their actors. I think that's something that, that both Todd Field and Charlotte Wells were able to do extremely well and why I put them in that category. And then, you know, I thought that there was some chance that like we'd all nominate Joseph Kaczynski after the last couple of times that I was like, Oh, maybe someone else will nominate Glenn Powell or adapted screenplay and uh, didn't happen this time, of course. But I do think, that it was just real, like the kind of, I mean, talking about Jordan Peele's like scale for action or whatever, like feels totally different when like half your movie is taking place in a cockpit and you're still, you have to put like a level of trust and training with your with your performers to sort of help you out as a director. And maybe that's an argument why he shouldn't get best director. I, I kind of think that's an argument for it um, in a way where you're able to have that connection with your performers and train them and direct them in a way where they kind of have to even do it without you even there. And I think that's just like a real accomplishment of the film. And um, you know, Scott was mentioning this earlier. It's like the, everything goes according to plan and it's this super measured endeavor. You need these two miracles or whatever. And they forget about like the third miracle they need to actually make it back into onto the carrier. And I think sort of like the, the, the chaos of everything after what was planned. I thought he was able to really do that. Well, it's one of the things where it's, that's the point in the movie where things can just sort of like splatter over and, you know, there's this massive explosion across the mountain ranges of, you know, insert, I don't know, Asian or Middle Eastern country. I don't know um, exactly where it is, of course, but I, I do think that land. Yeah. it's the enemy's land. Yeah, of course. Um, I Yeah, I just think that he's able to maintain control after all of the chaos sort of ensues. And I think that's a quality of the filmmaking that's really, really powerful. And guys, thank you for coming to my TED Talk so I could talk about James Cameron and Avatar The Way of Water, um, the best director of 2022. 
the man talk about letting someone cook fox and then disney let james cameron cook and we got the perfect meal i mean absolutely wonderful experience seeing this thing for the first time everything they said about not betting against james cameron is true etc etc i just think that what he's able to accomplish one is just like yes there is the pure spectacle element of it but just like putting aside all like the craziness that happens in the third act i just think what he's able to accomplish in the first two hours alone is sort of just a monument of filmmaking um i was talking to a coworker actually literally today who watched wakanda forever um on disney plus this past weekend after it came out um it comes to slander on that on that platform and hey this is not mine this is not this is all her and she said i she saw avatar the way of water in theaters and she was like it's it feels so crazy to me that people are talking about how cool the underwater stuff is in wakanda forever when it just seemed dark the whole time it's it just not seemed... even the same sport <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i was just like yeah you, you now you know why they delayed aquaman a whole freaking year uh so they could get out of the way of this movie um but it's just stuff like that like it, it's just it's just another example i feel like with maybe avatar the original avatar being the first one of like a kind of movie that might redesign a whole type of filmmaking and and sort of set the standard for anything you want to do underwater in movies and maybe that technology will get adopted maybe it's just such a feat of filmmaking that it won't be i mean that's like kind of what happened with 3d like they did 3d they made the best 3d movie ever and people just like said maybe we shouldn't do 3d anymore after a few years after of trying to replicate what james cameron was able to do with the original avatar and and i feel like they might just end up doing that too with avatar the way of water like maybe we're just not going to make movies underwater anymore because we can't do what he did um well i guess we'll see if that happens but i just think that it's wonderful i think he's able to tell a story that is and create characters and organize everything on screen in a movie that is all is like so many visual effects that's happening some um obvious uh, of course because the the land and the world is fan of pandora is fantastic is fantastical and some less obvious i think too and i just think it's incredible craft and i think it's easy to forget about i mean like here on our podcast we have basically we have one does the score count as a below the line category we have like one below the line category that we're talking about right now on this podcast and I think it's easy to forget about those categories when you're talking about the quality of film. If you're trying to go deep into this, the, you know, cinematography and costume bag, like, you know, just let me know. Our OG, four, ver- OG version of this podcast, Paul, had all those categories. Patreon episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm here for it, man. You and me, we can go for another four after this. Um, but I think it's easy to forget that. And we are we are literally leaving, not talking about those for the sake of the length of this podcast. I, under, I totally understand but I think it's we can't forget those types of things. We're thinking about how difficult a job it is to direct a movie, because I think there's so many examples of the director going in on a project that has a lot of visual effects and CGI, and just sort of drop like just kind of dropping the ball on it and not really having full authorial control. It's maybe very easy to say a Marvel movie is an example of that. I think it is true that it is an example of that. It's not the only one, but it is an example of that. Um, and I think James it's also like James Cameron, though, to be fair, is one of the only people who would get that kind of unilateral yeah. control over other people. You know what I mean? I mean, like, I mean, Kaczynski did it in Top Gun Maverick. I was going to say, like, he is also an example of it this year. There's no reason that Joseph Kaczynski should have that kind of control over Top Gun Maverick, but he does. Obviously, Marvel's a different beast. Like, like no one's going to hand. Like, yeah. even Ryan Coogler can't get the, the keys to that kingdom, even though he made, like, one of the most successful Marvel movies ever. I don't know. 
I'm sure the Russo brothers didn't even on on the Avengers. But overall, it's just um, it, maybe it's difficult. Maybe it's not always these other filmmakers' fault. And I think I think that's a very valid point to be made. But the proof is in the pudding that James Cameron did have that authority control, and what he made of that was Avatar: The Way of Water. And I mean, it was one of the best movies of. 2022 and it sort of just cemented the the year of tar we got tar we got avatar the way of water and we got after he goes Sun. again boom you find up, up you find up ava luke Besson's ava starting just suggesting <laughs> the complete the complete the trilogy sure uh, yeah. why not haven't seen that one i'll get around to it no you don't need to i don't scott's think. so tired of my year of tar stuff but i'm just gonna <laughs> say had... the proof is in the pudding we had to do it one more time. I mean, this yeah. is our sort of our last 2022 yeah. episode. I mean, if, if Paul, Paul gets his Celine Shama Petit Maman jokes, then I got to get my year of tar. That's fair. That's what he won. But anyway, Paul, so far. Uh, the rest <laughs> of yours and winner. Speaking of jokes, um, but no. Um, so, yeah, I, I sort of talked a lot about Terrence Davies earlier um, with Benediction, the way he's able to stitch together this narrative of this man's life. Um, and the way they visualize it too with this war footage that seems like it wouldn't necessarily fit in with like an austere period piece character study drama um but the transition of those phases of his life i think um no one really doesn't like him um ss roger Mooley, i sort of had a saved slot for a maximalist filmmaker and i was sort of waffling between michael bay and ss roger Mooley, and i was i ended up ultimately going with um though that i think like was even more of a spectacle than anything else really even more than avatar i feel like at least in terms of the way that the movie feels it just um and i think those like some of those sequences are just like unlike any other sequence in any other movie that, that you'll find this year um and his style i think is pretty again obviously foreign to american audiences but it's i love the way that it embraces sort of the inherent ridiculousness of some of the narrative that he's working with um and the way that he pieces together has these quiet moments that then crescendo into the insane bombastic, like saving the kid on the bridge um, or the escape from the prison, or obviously the, like the not to not to sequence or like the prison break. Like those are paced and sequenced so well within the rest of the movie. Um, I think that stuff is, is pretty amazing. And uh, I love his, again, his set pieces in the way that he designs um, the big action por the portions of his movies. Um, Charlotte Wills, yeah. I mean, we what what can what else can we say? One of the biggest things to me with her is she trusts her collaborators. Um, she's talked a lot about this about how she's not necessarily the person who's like dictating every aspect of the movie and just finds the right person to do their role and to maximize her this specific story. I don't really know what another movie from Charlotte Wells is going to look like, and that's something that's yeah. going to be kind of wild to see because it feels so intensely personal. And it's like when you make something this personal and like for your first effort, it's like where do you go from there? But just in terms of the specific achievement here, um, pretty much every element of the movie I think is pretty pretty amazing. Um, but my win is Jordan Peele. Uh, you guys mentioned a lot about him sort of leveling up in a way, uh, but then keeping like the family stakes like legible and personal and like making those still work and i think like well that stuff can get lost so easily when the movie is like about spectacle in this kind of way but you never lose the part about the haywood family their family history what that means in relation to the industry and how they feel like they're changing things but also they're these these kids where it's like you get these shades like kiki palmer wants to do other things with her life yeah. and but ultimately the, the way that the family comes together um and 
that's that's a movie that I got to pretty late, and so there had already been a sort of whole thing about about it. Um, but to finally see it, I think, was a pretty amazing experience. Um, and I didn't want to say this, you know, a hundred times or whatever, but um, it is just crazy too to see like a friend in a movie that is this acclaimed and this great, and like. I don't know. I thought Brent, Brent, shout out Brandon Perea. He's very good in the movie, I think. And um, hopefully better things in his career coming forward. Um, Peel, just a master of all, even the little scene with OJ in the barn where there's the creepy little beings that are following him, oh, yeah. I'll say. Um, it's like better than most horror sequences in the entire year, Like I think for me. Um, and the tension that he's able to ratchet in something like that, it's like, that's an example of like, just people are not really doing it like Jordan Peele. Like, he just is one of one. Brandon Prey is in my long list for supporting actor. Straight up. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone in the Nope Ensemble. Phenomenal. Uh, I didn't actually say my winner, but it's Celine Sciamma um, for Petite Maman. Um, yeah. It was really between her and Wells for me. Uh, it was really close just because I think it's similar. Feminist of- Scott Harvey is back. Let's go. <laughs> Oscars yeah, could it- never. It's similar sort of, you know, the show not tell filmmaking that I love so much. And, um, you know, I don't know that anyone is doing that better right now than Celine Sciamma. Um, like it's kind of mind blowing in 73 minutes, the experience that she's able to create. And, you know, it's it's a slow movie. It's a quiet movie, whatever. Like, you know, I, I am totally invested in every choice that she is making as a director. Like it. it that is the effect that it has on me. Like it is there. She has some sort of hypnotic effect. It feels like, um, like even I've talked about before, like the physical spacing and stuff and the blocking and everything like the, you know, I love how she uses like the, in the car ride, the, the way that Nellie reaches forward through like the seat and to try and like grab onto her mother, like, like she's holding onto her in a way, like trying to pull her closer. Right. But other times they're like positioned far from each other. And then the ending scene when, you know, he she walks in and there's her mom and they go and they sit next to each other. And finally they have a moment of like understanding, but it's also um, conveyed by the fact that the physical space between them has closed, it seems like, for the first time in the movie. Just little stuff like that. It's, there's all kinds of stuff like that hidden throughout the movie. Um and like, you know, again, the choices that she makes with respect to sound and music, like there's really just that one moment of, you know, where the quiet is suddenly pierced by this, you know, music when they are out in the woods. I don't even remember exactly what it is that's happening. It's when they like they, they go kayaking. The, yeah, they go in the, the boat. Little, when they're in the boat. Yeah, yeah, the boat. Yeah. Um, it's not a kayak. Just a, like a rowboat. Yeah, she's so strategic in everything that she she does. Like again, her movies paragliding. Cast a spell on me, um, and you know, watching this in um, in Lincoln Center, Scott was was there. Uh, so was Ethan. Yeah, yeah. And classic then New York, classic New York City theater name drops over here. Look, I don't get to do. I don't get to name drop stuff like y'all do. So um, let me, let me live here for a minute, but, um, but no, um, yeah, it was, it was a theater going experience that, you know, I absolutely loved. And I just sat there like kind of in a trance for the whole movie because of um, how beautiful and simple, but also, you know, emotionally rich she is able, you know, that what Celine Siama is able to do is in just 73 minutes. The the sling, the Scott Harvey Sling Shama turnaround of the last 
12 months has been something to behold. The fact that he turned off Portrait of a Lady on Fire like 20 minutes. I just, yeah, I just don't know. I just was not, it must not have been in the right mood for it, whatever that was. I didn't even know about that. Mistakes mistakes were made. I get it. But, but, you know, he he eventually went back and watched it and loved it. We applaud growth here. We applaud growth here. He's like, he's like, Ammonite did it way better. (laughs) I'm not shaming him. I'm calling out his growth. To be clear, I'm not trying to shame Scott Harvey. Yeah. I'm highlighting his... Literally, literally never seen Ammonite either. Uh, he's coming to the table. I mean, I'm not sure anyone has seen Ammonite. I'm not yeah. confident anyone has seen that movie. It only features, like, two of the greatest actresses of their <laughs> generation. <laughs> and nobody cares about that movie. Um, all right. Uh, let's move on to our final category. It's sure. our top ten scenes slash moments. We'll have some year. crossover at the top. Have Are we choosing? I can't remember. Do we do? Do we choose winners for this? I didn't pick a winner. I, mean, we I just ordered it. To one. I just went yeah. ten to I just went. I or I ordered mine ten to one. Oh guys, I didn't order it. Shit. Okay. I you don't have to. Come to me last. <laughs> All right, Paul. Paul, kick us off. All right, my number ten is the prank call from Navalny, um, the documentary, uh, the scene where they prank call the. People who are may or may not be perpetrators of the. Oh, we uh, know the scene. <laughs> of the incident. Wow. Um, my number nine is uh, Gordy's home from Nope. Um, so this scene where you sort of finally see what happened on this the famous sitcom Chris Kattan. Um, my number eight is a uh, the monologue about David's kindnesses from Resurrection, um, the classic monologue um, that I think like ratchets up more and more and more and. Not even just the length of it, but I think like her intensity and how she brings it up and down. The fact that it's just to this random girl who's working at the office is kind of fascinating to me. Um, the one person she probably feels like she can be honest with. Um, my number seven is Podrick and Siobhan, or Siobhan confronts Colm in the Banshees of Inisherin. Um, the whole debate they have about if kindness matters and talking about, you know, if anybody remembers, you know, people who are kind versus great artists and what the value of that versus sacrificing your friendship for something that's sustaining long-term. My number six is the prom scene from The Fablemans. So sort of like him, his conversation with his girlfriend folding into like the screening of the movie and then the confrontation with the the bully in the hallway as well. Um, It encapsulates so much of what's interesting about that character's arc and that moment in his life and just the interplay of like him being angry and him making him look so good on on film is hilarious to me um my number five is the first day on set in babylon um where you see the sort of scale of the production that they're mounting but also just the different um levels that are going on where you have the scenes being filmed with marco robbie and diego calv like rushing to get this camera and to me like that sense of scale and like the grandioseness of being on a movie set and how it feels so special um that i thought was just unbelievable um my number four is the juilliard scene from tar um you know it's been talked about and memed to death um instantly iconic yeah i mean her like the Even like memed uh, death in the movie yeah exactly um <laughs> But also just like where the camera's placed too as the conversation goes along where it's like starts in the audience and then it sort of pushes in and gets closer and how the way that it captures the different people's reactions to it um her snarkiness obviously i mean all of just like their physical mannerisms during it um just unbelievable um my number three is um after yang when they find yang's memories and sort of like the uncovering of what his life was before being with their family and um 
that culmination of this emotional journey of like what is in Yang, like what is in Yang's mind that we cannot access, and the crystallization of those themes that we talked about earlier about a person holding part of someone else's existence via their memories of them that I thought was like incredibly emotionally overwhelming. My number two is the, getting the impossible shot in Nope. Um, so the whole scene where they're racing to get the shot with Michael Wincott cranking away at that handheld camera on the hilltop, um, him riding the horse in to try to, you know, track Jean Jacket, um, Kiki Palmer's sort of mad scramble to try to get the photo, like all that stuff to me. Um, just unbelievable, like blockbuster filmmaking sort of like at it's pretty much near its apex. Um, and again, theme with grandiose well, like grandiosity is like something that i really do love and then my number one is the under pressure scene from after sun um the, again the whole movie clicking into place and its emotional center like exploding outwards and you know touching every other corner of the movie that you maybe didn't even think was necessarily linked to this central idea and this this, this central moment and like bringing all of those things together making her sort of realize ultimately what the relationship was about with her father, his whole deal, just everything. It's basically like the movie in a, you know, few minutes section. And it's like, bowls me over. Um, I rewatched it the other, the other day. And it was just like, there's no, there's no other number one for me. It's not even close. All right. So I think I'm going to go next. Um, yeah. So, so, so first off, so based for Paul just citing thirty minutes of note as his is one of his favorite <laughs> scenes of the year. Well, it's funny. It's, like, uh, it's not that long. It's, it's you know, yes, it is a hundred percent. It is. I promise. It's you. funny you say that, Scott, because my number ten is actually I just wrote it as the all of Petit Maman. No, <laughs> the conf confrontation with Jean Jacket from Nope. So I mean, the same. There's thing. multiple confrontations. I feel like yeah. that is I a mean, little for, different. Yeah, I you're mean, not like an hour of the movie. Obviously, I okay. All right, I I uh, obviously I mean the same sequence as Paul yeah. was talking about at the end. But anyway, uh, number nine, I have the monologue from Pearl. It's my monologue wow. for the year. Just the uh, dueling monologues of Pearl and Resurrection yeah. is not is not the conflict I expected on the pod today. And we're and yet we're leaving out Adam Driver's monologue in uh, White Noise. Again, I mentioned it earlier, but uh, anyway, uh, number eight, we are leaving that out. That's right. Number eight, I have the prank call from Navalny, which is just oh, wow. an ins insane scene. Like you know. <laughs> your jaw will be on the floor. Even if you know a lot about the story, I mean, I didn't know anything, but even if you know a lot about the story, I feel like you're not going to know what's coming in this scene exactly. And it is just, wow. Uh, number seven, speaking of insane, no, I, I'm disappointed Paul didn't have it, but the backseat surgery on Ambulance. It was my number, it was close. Scenes, it was very yeah, close. Ever, where they are basically taking this dude's spleen out in the back of a an ambulance, trying not to rupture it. They are on FaceTime with doctors who are golfing, trying to make sure that they're doing the surgery right and that it doesn't yeah. rupture. It does rupture. The FaceTime dies. The iPad dies, <laughs> and then they stick their hand into his chest, into yeah. like his chest cavity. To yes. yeah. anyway, um, just awesome. Uh, like who? I don't even know how he thought. Do you even know if he made it out alive? Do you even remember? I think he did, right? Yeah, I mean, not sure. she gets, That's the she funny gets part. The surgery, right? I know that. But uh, <laughs> number six, the bridge rescue from RRR. So this is the first real meeting between the two main characters when they have to rescue the 
little girl and you know tossing the flag and everything little girl. And it's a little boy brother oh little boy. Boy. Okay. sorry tossing the flag it's that's when you know what kind of experience you're in i mean you well that i guess you know before that you know when he freaking fights off five that was the one that would have been the one for me the prison break would have been or the his so or his solo capturing of the guy would have been the the one for me not the tiger not the tiger scene beams opening scene okay but anyway that being the first meeting and like why can't all action scenes look this good um it's it's awesome um, number five, I have the victim's testimony scene from All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. This is obviously one of my favorite movies of the year. I didn't really get an opportunity to talk about it because it doesn't really fit in any of the other categories. But this was like the most emotional film of the year for me. And this scene is just incredible where the victims of the Sackler family, as part of like the settlement agreement, get to give their testimony about how opioids affected them while the Sackler family have to sit and watch them on this Zoom call. Um, it's like pretty overwhelming, honestly, just watching their reaction and um, these people expressing the very real pain that they went through and just seeing, get, putting a putting a calloused face on, you know, this abstract family that we keep hearing referred to throughout the entire movie is like, you know, it all comes together. In that I mean, lived in Indiana, they were not abstract to me. Let me tell you, they were <laughs> everywhere. Sure. Uh, number four, I have Maverick making the test run from Top Gun Maverick. That was my favorite scene from Top Gun Maverick where, um, you know, Mav's been grounded or whatever, but he, you know, gets up in the plane and um, says, Hey, guess what? I can, sh- I'm going to show you that this, mission can be done and you know with everyone else You're saying the mission is possible is that, is that what he was on. yes exactly that's what uh, this and had different than the mission impossible movies that <laughs> this one was possible he completes the mission uh number three uh the closing credits of white noise um the the dance in the supermarket to new body roomba the lcd sound system song I mean, in addition to just being incredibly fun to watch, I mean, watching Andre 3000 with like a box of that just says cookies on it, just dancing around um, the song, actually, like, you know, listening to the lyrics of the song more like, you know, just listening to it outside of the context of the movie. But then, you know, the second time I saw the movie, um, you know, it really fits with the ultimate ideas that I think are at play in this movie and sort of the, um, you know, capitalism as a distraction for you know our real fears about what's going on in life uh such a great scene uh number two the uh sammy meeting john ford the final scene of the fablements um i mean nothing nothing else to say if you've seen this scene you know how incredible it is and david lynch chef's kiss and number one the juilliard confrontation from tar had to be it do be like that. Scott. No scenes. Okay. All right. Got my unique ones at uh, number number nine and ten. Um, I'm just looking down my list here real fast, I think. Oh, no, I've got another one later on. Cool. All right. Uh, so, guys, you ever heard of this uh, little film called Fall? And they uh, they climb a radio <laughs> tower. Let's go. In that movie. Number ten. Climbing it's, that tower. Good scene. Good so, scene. I was so anxious watching that scene like very high quality yeah. filmmaking in that scene i was very um, anxious later on in the movie when certain reveals were had and i was like I, oh yeah i wasn't anxious at that point in the movie warrant's cherry pie plays a role yeah. <laughs> um 
you know, pr pretty much everything after they climb the tower, I think the film kind of just loses its course somewhere along the way. Um, maybe, you know, as it falls off the tower. But I did really like uh, that, that scene. So, yeah, that was I was excited that I was the only one. Not, not that I expected anyone to be talking about that scene on the podcast today, but I'm glad that I had it. Um, number nine, I have the penguin car chase in the Batman. I felt like I kept coming back to that um, in terms of like sequences. It's I, I can't remember if I said this earlier. I was only thinking of it earlier. It's just I got to get this out because it wouldn't be me on a podcast talking about movies if I didn't talk about how it is criminal how they ruin scenes in trailers of films. And they almost managed to ruin the scene by showing it in the trailers. But luckily, it's still just such a high quality scene from start to finish. Um, really, really loved it. Number eight, Babylon, the uh, first day on set. I called it the welcome to college scene. Um, uh, Hello know, college, a, right? Is the, is that's the a different college? scene from the one Paul's talking about. Also. Is, oh, is it? Oh, right, right. You're talking about. Yours is the sound with the set. Yours is with the sound stage. Yes, yes. Mine is outdoors. Mine is outdoors. Got it. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah. Um, hello, hello, college. Welcome to college. I don't know. Don't hello, ask me. College. I'm not I'm not a stand of this. Chris movie. Ryan's letterbox review, so I'll never yeah. forget. Yeah. But, hello, right. college. Hello, college. Got it. Yeah. Um, I really, really, that that was peak Babylon for me. Definitely. I, everything, the best scene. Yeah. Every, everything from there was downhill. I'm not here to talk about Babylon. I'm just here to talk about how that scene was incredible. I wish that I had felt the like the same way about the rest of the movie as I did about that scene, because I just thought like everything was clicking and it is, it is like everything that just that um, uh, Damien Chazelle just like is perfect at in terms of filmmaking. It felt like whiplash, like some of the best parts of whiplash. It felt like um, that, like transplanting that onto like the setting of Hollywood and like La La Land. It, it just felt like all the things that I really like about Chazelle's filmmaking is super claustrophobic, which is something that he just excelled at in First Man, the way they're able to make that, you know, claustrophobic, the way that they're literally able to kill a man in this, <laughs> in the in the camera booth is did not love the guy in the booth part that's the one part that sort of yeah that's me. the worst part of the scene for sure sure worst part of the scene but like that that sort of chaotic energy i think all just really yeah. works and you know the 10 takes i bet i bet like david fincher is like watching that like taking notes be like yeah i could run a few takes like this let's go imagine doing that scene with fincher and having to do it like a hundred times i think they literally would have killed the cameraman probably if fincher were doing it um but yeah overall i just i really like that scene I, you know, I thought that I might be the only person with the Navalny prank call scene on my list, and here we are, all three of us. But you know, it's sitting your. That's the only scene we all three have. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Because oh, I no, have that at number seven, so apparently it was more important to me than the rest of you. So eat it. Um, number six, I didn't. I kind of surprised that no one else had not to not to. Where where are you guys at? I mean, it's, I just picked a different scene for the movie, but yeah, it's gonna win the Oscar. I mean, I don't know, you know. Sometimes oh, oh, it's gonna win choices. the Oscar, so we shouldn't we shouldn't talk. It's gonna make choices. It's yeah, gonna yeah. win, you know. Oh, that's fair. Um, actually, just the song is winning the Oscar, Paul, not the scene. Um, to, to just, be no, this it's best winning best original scene. It's a new category. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, fine by me, whatever. Uh, yeah, because they can't give it to half of the film, <laughs> no, apparently. So, so they have to reserve it just for the not to, not to. Um, they could. I mean, they they, you're to. right. They could if they wanted to. Top Gun Maverick. I went back and forth between like the actual two miracles um, scene when they're actually doing the the mission and then the test run. And I settled on the test run, like Scott did. I, I think that like the inner like the jolt of energy that I think you get as that scene starts and then it's pretty it's pretty compact 
and it's time. I mean, it's too much. I, 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 I would, I was really close to the choosing the Mach 10 sequence. Actually, that probably would have been my, that was like my. It's just, right it's too there. much like the right stuff. I just can't. I, I'm, I, well, it's, I just it's getting good and not three and a half hours long, so it's not. Like I know. That. I just mean the scene from the right but stuff where he count, breaks. But I know. Point, I know. I know. I know. Should it have been two, three and a half hours long? I mean, that's no. the question. I think. We God no. God no. You Please say no. no, but I don't know. Um, maybe I should talk more about Nati Nati. I kind of just glided right over that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it goes so hard. Oh my lord. I mean, you guys were telling me that I had to go. Like I would tell them, like. You know, it's one night only at the Alamo here in New York City. Should I go? It's like kind of inconvenient. The film's super long. Should I go? And you guys like cajoled me or coaxed me into going. I'm like, fine, I'll do it. Um, no, no regrets. No regrets. And the fact that this thing is like positioned right before intermission, I like sort of just had like walked around in a bit of a daze during intermission and walked back in and ordered some popcorn, I think. Um, it just what you know, movies, guys, movies. Anyway, yeah, Top Gun Maverick, the test run. But sure, Mach 10. There's just so many scenes to choose from. I just think that it's such a crowd pleaser of a film, I guess. It's literally what it is. And my other unique, like my last unique scene on the list at number four, uh, I just called it whale shit in Avatar The Way of Water. I mean, the thing that, that whales... I was, the first time he meets him, I was like, I that was that scene was pretty up there for me. Yeah, j just all the stuff that uh, that James Cameron has the Tolkien do in, 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 this, in these films. Just un unreal um so like so similar to uh the like the the run through the gulch scene and nope that i think we've all talked about and i'm about to talk about here in a few spots uh i feel like i feel that way when they're like riding out to meet the boat that like, you have like the franklin score and they're like riding out on i don't remember the creature's names that they're that they're riding um but there's there's like a there is a motif that they're riding out to and i'm just like yes let's go um so that that's just sort of how I felt during that. That's my number four. Number three, Ju Juilliard. This is so boring, guys. The top three is so boring. Now that you guys have said it too, um, the the Juilliard scene is incredible. I'm always a sucker for like a a long take. Um, you know, you got two in a row in tar. You know, it's like bang bang. Yeah, <laughs> let them cook. Um, I yeah, it was pretty crazy. Like the, the fact that there's two in a row and then also like. There's this this scene is just like nuts. Um, for all the reasons you were explaining earlier, Paul, like the 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 use of the camera, it's not like they just like set the camera down and like just talked for twelve minutes or however long that scene is. It's they are moving the camera around and it's really spectacular to watch. And of course, everything else with Blanchett's performance and how the scene works. And then again, almost almost like calling back to that scene later when you see that thing cut to pieces and like re-edited and um, taken out of context. Like it's very it's a very interesting choice, and I think it's cool to to go back to that later on in the movie. Um, my number two is uh, nope. I just said specifically the scene that I talked about earlier, which is when OJ is like riding through the gulch, um, and Jean Jacket's chasing him, and they're getting they're trying to get the shot. I guess the Oprah shot's technically at the end of the movie, but they're like they they think at this point in time this is going to be the Oprah shot um, of it, and. Yeah, that when that musical motif kicks in from Michael Abel's there and he starts running through it, it's that it's it's exactly what Scott was describing earlier. It's like the twinkle, it's the western like he's mashing that all together and pushing that through in that scene and I mean it's it's so so good. It's so so good. Um and then after some Paul we were talking before the podcast about whether we were going to fight over who could have uh, under pressure at number 1 and uh, my response is bet uh, we can both have it at number 1. So under pressure, just the scene 
scene of the year, everything that Paul said, you know, times times a thousand. And it's just, you know, it's, it's up there in like emotionally overwhelmed trademark. Um, full stop, I'd say. And then, yeah, I, I think someone mentioned earlier, I don't remember who, but then like almost like the hard cut to him in the room, sort of like very loudly, almost like wailing, almost, it feels like. And the um, choice to have him face away from the camera. Face, the 100%. And so she talked about that the cinematographer, I guess, loves to film people crying from behind, I guess. And that was all the cinematographer's choice. Yeah. But like, it's such a good, like... Because it's totally. so him though, in the whole movie, like that it is. It communicates the shame. It communicate like it communicates yeah. everything. It's really powerful. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I could talk about after some for three and a half more hours, but that's my top ten scenes list. Broker Ferris wheel scene number eleven. I'll just shout it out. Because <laughs> wow, it was it almost we did stuck it. in there. Coward, um, we did it, fam. All right, guys, I think that'll just about do it for this episode of Some Like It Scott for our Some Like It Scott Awards. Thank you to those who listened uh, and made it all the way to the end of the episode. Thank you to all of the, you who listened to Some Like It Scott at any point in 2022. Another great year for film, another great year for the podcast. Um, and, of course, thank you to Paul for being here to commemorate this occasion for you. We look forward to doing it again next year, of course. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash media plug pods. Even if you can't support us over there, however, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope you'll be back for our next episode. 2022 is over. It's time for 2023. We'll be counting down our most anticipated films of 2023. But until then... For Paul Oyama and Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.